Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. What are we seeing in football right now? What are we seeing in NFL games with Tom Brady over the weekend? Uh, obviously, Monday Night Football had a fiasco where a player was penalized after coming away with the football. What are we watching when we're watching our NFL games? The National Football League. Are we going to see the quarterback with a flag on, two-hand touch? What are we going to see? If this evolves in the way that we all sort of see it going. Like, I get what the NFL is doing. I understand. They're trying to protect the quarterback. But I feel like the officials are going a wee bit too far. Overcorrection, so to speak. I want your calls off the top of the show. 503-417-7575. So many tentacles to this. One of them, of course, being, you know, what do you tell defenders who are trying to sack the quarterback? How should they be sacking a quarterback it doesn't appear that you can tackle a quarterback bring him to the ground your body weight can't be on top of them you can't uh you know take the ball from them and and fall beside them i don't know what i'm watching anymore watched it last night and again all the discussion today about the officiating nationally across television across radio shows everybody talking on social media not about the games but about the officiating what is that about what is going on with that? I don't know. I don't get it. I don't. I guess I understand it because I understand that the league is trying to protect quarterbacks, keep them in the game. But I feel like the officials have gone too far. There's been a correction in the last week, and I predicted this last week. I told you the NFL, in the wake of Tua's injury and the head injury and the outcry about so you know concussion protocol and does the league care. Did they violate? Where's the Players Association? The reaction from the National Football League has been officials on the field on Sunday's games and again on Monday night uh, basically sending a message to pass rushers, defensive tackles, linebackers, telling them, hey, if you're going to sack the quarterback, bring the quarterback down gently. As a football fan, are you okay with this? I want to know if, as a football fan, you look at what you are seeing on the field and you go, look, we understand that if a quarterback is knocked out, it really does hurt teams. We're seeing a number of teams at this point of the season that are dealing with the loss of a quarterback. Not having that guy at that position is an absolute killer. But is that an acceptable trade-off in your mind as a football fan? To see officials treating the quarterback with kid gloves, bubble wrap, whatever metaphor you want to use, is that okay in your mind, or has it gone too far? 503-417-7575 is the number. We've got a great show today. We're going to talk to Jack Coletto, linebacker, running back at Oregon State. He's a physical guy. I'm going to ask him 
I'm going to ask him, like, as a linebacker who ends up in a uh, situation often during a Pac-12 football game where he's attempting to tackle a opposing quarterback, how, like, how does he approach that? How does that change his mentality if he is tackling the passer? If on Saturday, as uh, Jack Coletto goes to uh, run around the football field and he comes into contact with Washington State quarterback Cam Ward, um, it, you know, how, sh- how is he going to approach tackling Cam Ward? How, how, you know, does the mindset shift? How has it shifted? This has all sort of happened in the NFL, but there is naturally a trickle-down effect to college football. And, you know, I think we all sort of look at college football and say, hey, the targeting rule there needs some help. It needs some work. It's often confusing. Uh, I don't think the average fan who's watching games understands that, like, you can be called for targeting without even involving your helmet in the play. It could be a shoulder pad. It could be just a defenseless receiver. Uh, There's a variety of nuances to that rule that causes a lot of confusion. But I think in the NFL, we have literally watched the the strike zone change during the course of the season. Like often you'll see rule changes that are instituted at the beginning of the year. For example, in college football, no longer can you have a below the waist block outside of the tackle box. Okay, so you're out of the tackle box. You can't block below the waist the crack back blocks or the blindside blocks they've cracked down on those as well so to speak but those things happen in the offseason what we have literally seen happen this season in the wake of uh Tua Tagovailoa uh getting hurt uh and you know all the questions about whether or not the Dolphins handled his concussion protocol correctly and all that I think we've seen the entire league and the officiating in this league in professional football suddenly go, okay, we're going to call this differently. We're really going to go out of our way to send a message to defensive linemen to say, if you're going to sack the quarterback, you better sack him gently. How do you feel about this as a football fan? Have they taken the tackle out of football? Or are you okay with it? Granted, it could be called against your team, but are you okay with it knowing that, you know, you're going to see quarterbacks in this league potentially maybe – not leave games, get hurt, get knocked out, you know, on a week-to-week basis. 503-417-7575 is the number. Great radio show for you. Let's go out to Mark in Portland. Go ahead, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Uh, obviously, uh, I hate it as a football fan because it it's not football. They're, they're, they're trying to cater to, to whoever it is out there and, and change a gladiator sport. Uh, football's not like... Uh, they don't do it in boxing or in the in the what, what do they call it now? I don't even watch it. The the, the MMA, the UFC. Yeah, MMA. Yeah. Right. They don't. I mean, come on. Those guys are trying to knock, cause concussion damage on every punch. This is a gladiator sport. I understand changing the rules a little bit, but what frustrates me is it's it's not a fair situation. Tom Brady is going to get calls over Lamar Jackson, over these guys that are physical that run at the quarterback position, Josh Allen, Mahomes. They're not going to get those calls. I mean, it, it's it's overkill with what happened uh, to uh, to Atlanta against Tampa Bay. It's just that was a routine tackle, John. There's nothing else you could do. Brady's a strong guy even at his age. If you're just going to try to play uh, pussyfoot with him, he could throw the football with a guy hanging on him like Ben Roethlisberger used to do. So it's at the end of the game. You don't want the guy to get a pass off. You have to be a little bit physical. You're tackling him to the ground. So 
it doesn't make any sense to me what they're doing. It doesn't. There's no logic. I think what Troy Aikman said, we need to review that play and make a common sense decision. You got to give the defense a chance to play, or you're going to ruin the integrity of the game. You just yeah. are. It's, it's not. It's not baseball or basketball. It's a gladiator sport. We all accept that. You know, going in, you have a chance of getting injured on every play. So I think we're. I think we're. Uh, we're trying to. We're trying to act like it's 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 a normal sport. We're going to normalize it when it's not. It's a gladiator sport. It's you're going to have injuries every week. That's that why we have a big injury list every week. We never know who's in and out. It's a different sport. And and either they play the game of football or they should just uh, uh, you know make it illegal to play the sport because you're you're not going to change the physicality of the game or you're gonna. It's not football. <laughs> yeah, and how I feel. Yeah, I, I appreciate you on that front. I I think the broadcasters, you know, Troy Aikman made a comment last night. Uh, uh, you've seen uh, a variety of different, like Dan Lanning, Oregon's coach, he tweeted about it. He said that's not roughing last night during the Raider game, Raider Chiefs game. And I think there are a lot of people upset about this, especially defensive-minded people and especially people who have played, uh, you know, in the NFL or played major college football or coaching major college football because the fear is that this is going to trickle down to the college game. I don't like overcorrections. I don't like overreaction. I feel like the right move for the league would have been to come out in the wake of the Tua injury and go, look, we're concerned about quarterbacks. We are sending out a directive to our officials to call that play tighter. And if we see any hint of roughing, we're going to call it. And I think, by and large, the fan bases would have supported that. But the way that they did it, and they do this all the time in the NBA and the NFL and in Major League Baseball with the strike zone as well, it, the way that they do it, it you know, is they just come out and they start calling it a different way and they let the game react to it. And you're going to see defensive linemen and tackles, linebackers. You're going to see you know corner blitzes and safeties that come upon a quarterback, and you're going to see them approach the quarterback in a different way. Just try to wrap them up, gently bring them down. You watch it. It's going to happen, and it isn't going to take very long. I wouldn't be surprised if we see it on Thursday Night Football or for sure this Sunday as games take place. 503-417-7575 is the number. I want your phone calls. Steven, what do you make of all this? Have they gone too far, or do you get it? Yeah, I think they've gone too far, uh, but you know, I don't want to sound like I'm being you know inconsiderate of people's health, right? But just like the last caller just said, like, Football is a different game, and I think we've all kind of come to that conclusion of it's going to be physical. So if you really are trying to protect the players from getting hurt or having long-term effects, you might as well just not play football because that's just kind of what it is. So, you know, it, it may, you know I don't want to say it's, – it's hard because, you know, you don't want to see people hurt, and it's not a safe game for sure. But at the same time, that's just kind of how the sport is played. So I think they've gone a little too far, John, but – you know, I think there's ways to go about it. I think you know a lot of people have talked about maybe having it be under review, just like in the college game they review targeting, have the roughing the passer being reviewed up in the booth. I think that's a good step, um, because it's just you're not going to appease everybody, right? So if you want to continue making all the money with football and all those kind of things, you got to have this in the game. You can't have it be flag football. People just won't be as entertained by it. I like the idea of reviewing it because. I feel like on the field, in the heat of the moment, sometimes the official, you're so close to the action. Anybody who's ever been you know, down on the sidelines for an NFL game understands how small that field feels when you get large, athletic, 
NFL defensive linemen, linebackers, uh, running backs, offensive tackles running around. Like the college game, the high school game, there are big steps up in speed of the game and the size of the players. But when you get to the NFL, you're literally getting mutant-sized defensive linemen and offensive linemen, 6'7", 6'6", 6'8", 330, who are moving around and flying around like guys that are much lighter and much leaner. And I think it does put the quarterback in a precarious position. I get that the league wants to protect quarterbacks. I want to protect them too. But, the you know, the Tom Brady sack and then the one last night, I'm cringing at where this is all headed. We can clearly see that the officials are are trying to send a message to the defensive linemen. Let's go to Daryl, who's in Myrtle Creek. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks. I saw the Tom Brady sack, and I was completely flabbergasted that they called roughing the passer. Are you kidding me? He sacked the quarterback. That's all it was. He wasn't trying to hurt him. He didn't lead with his helmet. They, in my opinion, they need a review. Somebody to review these calls and overturn them when it's necessary, like that one. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it, yeah, I I get it, and I think that uh, I think that that's kind of what we were just talking about with the ability for the booth to kind of weigh in on it. Um, to play devil's advocate here, Sean, I think you have a good you know stance when it comes to you know you're a Dolphins fan. You lost your quarterback earlier this year. Do you have a different take on it? No, I can't say I do because it's getting too extreme. Like they they need to find the right balance, which I think in previous years and you know before this weekend we've seen them find the right balance where you got to be careful, but you know it's it, you can hit the quarterback. And now it's getting way too extreme where you know the Derek Carr call was egregious and the obviously the Tom Brady call was egregious. So again, they gotta they gotta find that healthy balance. And the NFL they're just making all these changes in the middle of the season the second something goes wrong, which is a big problem. They're not sticking to you know the rules that they have in place because uh, many of these rules are a little bit too extreme now or just not not good enough and uh, you know, I can't say I'm, I'm for what we saw this past weekend. I'm definitely for keeping the quarterbacks healthy because, like I mentioned yesterday, you know, I think the Dolphins are the number one team that says we lost our quarterback. Our season's kind of in the gutter now after it got off to a great start. But when you have guys like Micah Parsons, who, in my opinion, is the best front seven, best defensive lineman player in the game today, he is extremely outspoken in Twitter. He said the NFL is terrible. Like, that is your best front seven player. That is the best linebacker in the entire league future of your league and he's speaking out it's it's gotten too extreme so they gotta they gotta scale it back a little bit and let let the players hit the quarterback at least a little bit after the game last night Devonte adams shoved an employee a contractor working for espn he's apologized is it enough i'll weigh in next back to the bald face truth with john canzano Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. That was pretty lame last night when Devontae Adams, receiver of the Raiders, pushed a man down at the end of the Raiders' loss to the Chiefs. I tweeted about it this morning. He was on his way to the locker room. He was frustrated. Adam Schefter reporting that Adams is facing discipline from the NFL. Josh McDaniels, Raiders coach, speaking midday today, said he did not know what may or may not come from the league, and he said he supports Devontae wholeheartedly as a human being. 
as a person. He's a great guy. Blah 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 blah. Like what else? You know, like, like for once, I like to see a coach say, "You know what? I I'm tremendously disappointed by that. That was embarrassing. Shoving a contractor down. Guy's just doing his job. He's got like a microphone on a boom. He's trying to get out of the way. And Devontae Adams, who's frustrated after the game, uh, you know, he had a bad moment. And you know, he pushed the photographer. He shoved him down. Apparently, the dude. Uh, uh, you know, had he's got non-life-threatening injuries, but, you know, you've got police investigating. They're going to be looking into this. After the game, Devontae Adams apologized. He said, I want to apologize to the guy. There was some guy running off the field, and he ran. He jumped in front of me. It's not what the video shows. And I bumped into him, and I kind of pushed him. Nope. You shoved him. He did say when reporters pressed him on it that he was sorry, and then he tweeted out he was sorry. But here's my thing with this. Like, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I want to say that, he, you know, sometimes good people have bad moments, right? We all have moments that we're not at our best. And Devontae Adams may have just had a bad moment coming off the field. But the right way to address this, if he's being authentic, if he's being genuine and he's saying the moment he shoved the guy, he felt terrible. It sure didn't look like it on the video. It kind of looked like he just shoved him and kept running. So if you're having that moment and you shove somebody, I'd have a lot more respect for Devontae Adams. In fact, I probably wouldn't even be talking about it today had he stopped and reached down to help the guy and been like, hey, are you okay? Bad moment. Sorry. Apollo, like he was right there. You don't have to wait till you get to the locker room. The reason, the dirty little secret here, the reason that Devontae Adams apologized later is that he realized it was going to be a problem and that it was caught on camera. And so he apologized in the locker room. He apologized on Twitter. And, oh, by the way, not that hard for your team personnel, for the Raiders, the Chiefs, the media relations staffs on both teams, not that difficult to find out who that guy is. There's only so many people credentialed. All they had to do was ask. Anybody know who this person is? Yeah, that's Joe McGee. He's a contractor. He's working for ESPN tonight. Okay, Devontae, get in touch with the guy. Apologize to him person to person, not on Twitter. Hoping you see this. It's crap. It's a bad moment by Devontae Adams, and literally uh, I'm looking back and I'm going, you know what? You, We could talk all we want about Chris Jones getting called for roughing the passer on Derek Carr, but uh, we can talk uh, also about Devontae Adams. Bad moment for Adams last night in that game uh and i think a bad moment too on twitter with him apologizing hope you see this i i think it's it's ridiculous it's disingenuous you know you know i I don't believe for a minute that he felt bad and felt like apologizing until he realized this is going to be a story let's go to dev who's in eugene dev what's going on man hey i just want to chime in last night i was watching the game listen you cannot have a 300 pound lineman drive a quarterback into the ground that was roughing the passer now listen i I watched a lot of football and i want to watch good football and when it's good football it's good quarterbacking right so why wouldn't you take care of your best i mean you've got to take care of these guys i mean they're they're vulnerable they're back there trying to read the field and they could get blindsided or whatever what the refs need to do is they need to go back to the when you're in the grasp of any grasp you get a hand on your jersey that play is dead. You got to start calling it early 
so it doesn't escalate into getting driven into the ground. Well, I think the message is getting there. And look, and I appreciate the sentiment. The I think the difference with that call last night is, you know, you're you're you know, the referee after the game says Chris Jones essentially put all of his weight onto the quarterback. But I don't know what a guy who is tackling a quarterback from behind and stripping the ball, I don't know what that guy's supposed to do is gravity is doing what it's doing. Well, the thing is, the defenders have done a good job of adjusting, right? When they first started calling penalties of roughing the passer, they started going for the football a lot more and trying to force more fumbles rather than hit the quarterback. This was like an unfortunate play where he landed on him, yes, but he also went for the ball and he forced the fumble. So like he's kind of adjusting to what the NFL wanted him to do. Now they're going to have to adjust even more. It's just I don't know what they're expected to do. Like you said, the law of nature is just he's going to go after him and then he falls on him. It's not like he meant to do that. But I think it's just like everything else with when you talk about officiating, you know, Major League Baseball umpires, if they want to change the strike zone, can change the strike zone arbitrarily. Like, you know, they can get together and go, okay, listen, uh, I'm going to call, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to call a little more liberal strike zone tonight. And the pitchers and the hitters on both teams, they may bellyache, but they will very quickly adjust to it. I think the same thing's going to happen with the roughing the passer. I think the net result is going to be a safer game. I just don't like the way that they're getting there. Uh, the referee last night also pointed out when he, you know, there's a pool reporter that can talk to the officials after every game. He told the pool reporter that it did not matter that uh, that Derek Carr did not have the ball. You get passing protection until you can defend yourself, meaning if you've thrown the football, it's out of your hands. They can't level you after the ball's gone. If you fumble the ball or it's stripped from you, they can't land on you with full body weight uh, You know because you're a defenseless player. Let's go to Sam in Portland. Sam, what do you think? I think you should um, screen people and see if they've actually played the game before they call in to make comments. That, that was a strip sack. That was not roughing the passer. That was a professional athlete who's 300 and some pounds controlling his body through the, the tackle. He was thinking, okay, I got him. I got to get the ball. I got the ball. I got to brace myself. And he did. You watch his arm go down as he strips the ball away and then rolls off of him. That's ridiculous. That was not roughing the passer. I mean, it, 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 he, and Chris Jones says it. He says, maybe we have to go to the replay. And I agree. Because some of these guys, what do you expect him to do? He's coming out, he's got a clean shot at the quarterback, and then he focuses, strips. It was a great play. He stripped the ball away, gets the sack, and, and rolls off of him. And that was a great play, and he was robbed. So that's what I think. And seriously, start screening these guys. If you don't know the game, if you never played the game, you know, maybe let the, those of us who are experts at it call in. Yeah, All right, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't think you necessarily have to have, you know, I don't think you necessarily have to, you know, be a mechanic or a, a, a motorsports driver to have an opinion on race car or motorsports. You can have an opinion. Like, you can watch a football game. You don't have to have played the game. I think there's lots of examples of guys who didn't play the game who end up uh, coaching at a high level. Uh, there are some examples of some uh, high-profile college coaches who never played the game, but, but they coached the game. So I, I don't want people to not call in if they haven't played the game. But I also think, like, you know, Jones was asked after the game, you know, he was explained that it was explained to him that the referee said your full body weight, and he said, "How should I tackle people? How do I not roll on him? I'm trying my best. I'm 325 pounds. Okay, what do you want me to do? I'm going full speed, trying to get to the quarterback, and then he stripped the ball. And 
Um, I do think that if you had the ability to go to a replay, it could solve this problem. And I think the NFL needs to get there sooner rather than later. They say they're going to evaluate this. The changes may not come till the end of the season. They've already made a change. The officials are calling it differently. Fix it now. We're going to Jack Coletto, Oregon State linebacker, running back, quarterback. He joins us next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest, he's tackled a couple of few running backs, quarterbacks. He's carried the ball. He throws the ball. Hell, I thought he would end up long snapping on Saturday night as the Beavers uh, were at Stanford late in this game looking for a long snapper. I tweeted, hey, Jack Coletto might be able to long snap, and somebody else, Stanford's Twitter account, said, I bet you Jack Coletto could hold the ball and kick it at the same time. Jack Coletto, the hammer, joining us now. Uh, let's let's play a little game here, Jack Coletto. Uh, growing up. How many different positions in football did you play? Growing up, it's funny that you asked that. It really wasn't that many. I played safety and I played quarterback. That's it. Yeah. Just two ways. Were you kicking? Were you were you uh, doing any long snapping? Any kind of special teams uh, work for you there? I remember I tried out for kicker once. I ended up toe punching it. I made a PAT, and there was like an elimination thing. So I got to the next round and. Shank the next one, and I didn't become the kicker. Love it. <laughs> Jack, hey, give us an idea of what was that like uh, late in that game. You know, uh, as everybody's watching, you know, Trayshawn Harrison, you know, Ben Goldbrinson. What was that like to just be on the field in that situation? I mean, honestly, it was weird because we've uh, we obviously been in that situation before in games past. And I know we didn't really have much time in no timeouts, but I also was like, I mean, we got a good chance here. I, I believe we just do our thing and march down the field, we'll have a shot. And then, of course, a few plays later, that play happens with Trey Sean. It's just like, what the heck just happened? Phenomenal. So. Yeah. Phenomenal uh, finish. I mean, unbelievable. But, you know, evidence and, you know, some people called it lucky, and I, and I stopped him. Jack, because I, I think you make your own luck in this game. I'm glad you stopped him. I don't have to do it for you, but, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's so funny, though, if you think about it. Like, after the game, just watching it, there's so many players where it's like, well, what if this happened? What if that happened? What if they didn't do that? What if we did this? And it's just, it could have gone in so many different directions, but it just turned out the way it turned out. I'm glad it did. Yeah, I mean, you get the W. I think it's tough to win on the road in the Pac-12 conference, but you're right. You you know, if you go back, you know, there's a hell of a uh, touchdown reception by Silas Bolden. There's a hell of a run by Damian Martinez. The defense got a stop on Stanford and fo- forced him into a field goal situation. Looked like you found your zone running game, you know, late in the third quarter and used it throughout the fourth quarter. I mean, there was a lot of things that you guys did on the field to make that outcome possible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and plus with the Silas Bolden catch, it's like, that was on fourth down. It was like fourth and seven. So if we don't make that play, uh, it's a turnover on down. But who knows how the game would have played out. What was the locker room like afterwards? Um, That's so funny. Because obviously everybody was happy and excited, but it's just like, man, we didn't play well at all. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of mistakes and a lot of things to clean up. And the players understood that. We knew that. And we're obviously working on fixing that and getting that dialed in because Washington State is a good team. And we're not going to win if we make those mistakes again. So, can, can you give me an idea of, you know, I couldn't tell what was happening in the first half. It You guys looked like you, you were a little bit undisciplined. There were some uncharacteristic penalties. There was some fighting going on. It it just kind of felt like you guys weren't in rhythm. Like, is there a reason for that, or does that just happen once in a while with the team? I mean, it definitely got chippy early with both sides. And, I mean, I, I don't know. It's probably Stanford, their emphasis that week was being physical. They came out and they were physical, uh, definitely more so than what we saw on film. And, I mean, hats off to them for that. But it's just – it's just one of those things. It's like we move the ball, we do good things, and then we just shoot ourselves in the foot. And we ultimately just can't do that, especially the start of the game. And, you know, we rallied in the fourth, and ultimately you need to be able to do that as well. But we can't be digging ourselves in a hole that early. Jack Coletto with us, linebacker, running back, jackhammer.com. If you want his apparel, it joins us every other week on this show. Jack, uh, t- explain to us why it's so hard to go on the road in the conference and win. Is it – is it the travel? Is it waking up in a hotel? Is it the environment? Is it a blend of that? What What's your philosophy on sort of the the difficulty of winning on the road? I would, I mean, it's definitely all that. I would sum it up to pretty much the unfamiliarity and the fact that we have to go somewhere else and then play in their place, and then they're familiar with everything they got going on. They have their locker rooms, and they're used to everything around there and what they got going on. And I mean, my philosophy, and uh, actually I think this was my high school coach who would say this, is you always have to play 14 points better on the road. And I completely agree, especially in, with uh, college football and, the, and in the Pac-12 because the environment's changing, whether it's going down to Stanford, playing them on natural grass, or going to the Arizona in the desert or elevation with Utah and Colorado. It, it's a bit different, and that's why – there just needs to be an added emphasis on doing what you can control correctly and making you think, sure your assignment. You think 14 points? I said yesterday I thought it was like 9 to 10 points. Like everybody always says 3, but I think it's more. But you think it's even more? I'd say around 14, yeah. It's phenomenal. I'll play about points better on the road. Washington's... So. Washington State's dicey. Uh, they've got a quarterback in Cam Ward. You were he, you know, he he's looked really good at times. Uh, you know, not so good other times. But defensively, they're good. What do you see on film when you look at Washington State? Uh, defensively, obviously, yeah, they they get after it. They play hard. They're physical, so that'll be a challenge for us. And and also the scheme they they do. Um, offensively, I mean, the quarterback can get out of the pocket and he can extend the plays with his feet. And anytime you have a quarterback that can do that, it always presents a, another challenge. So we'll just have to make sure we have a really good week of practice to prepare for that. Do you Does coming off a win, like you get off Stanford, now you get kind of the stretch where you're home for a little bit, and just coming out of that, what does it feel like to get back to practice coming off a win versus maybe – you know, what you had a week or two earlier as you're coming off a, a disappointing loss? Oh, it's so much better. I mean, my dad always told me, there's no happy losers out there. <laughs> so, I mean, going to practice on a Tuesday after losing is a lot worse than coming to practice after a win. 
quarterback play. Ben Gulbrinson back there. He looked com- more comfortable uh, with a full week of practice under his belt. What have you seen in that kid? It, you know, in your time at Oregon State, you watched him grow a little bit. I always thought he could sling the ball. He always throws a really good ball. And then I remember when he first got out, it was 2020 versus Arizona State towards the end of the year, and he got out there. I mean, he, he looked really decisive, good with his reads. I mean, could put the ball wherever he wanted it. And I think he displayed that again when he uh, played against Stanford. I mean, that's just kind of – I mean, what he did on against Stanford, I – I've seen that during practice, so it doesn't really surprise me, but I'm definitely happy for him. All right. I, I have a theory on something that happened during the game, and I think you are uniquely qualified to to evaluate this answer. So somebody asked me, you know, Stanford late in the game went into kind of a wildcat situation and a short yardage situation with their backup quarterback. They brought somebody else into the game. And I I saw that happening, and I said, I wouldn't do that to Oregon State. They see that all the time in practice, and they see it with a better player back there in Jack Coletto. Do you feel like your first-team defense may get some looks with you at, in that wildcat or you in that quarterback position in short yardage in practice that may prepare them better for opposing teams that try to run that stuff? Oh, definitely, especially when they line up in similar formations. But it's so funny that during practice, because there's always a bunch of talk back and forth between the offense and the defense. And, of course, I'm in the middle of it because, you know, I'm on defense. So every time, like, they stop me or something, I always have to hear it from the, the defense and all that stuff. But, yeah, just being familiar with it and seeing it all the time, you're obviously going to be able to play it better. It's, it's interesting because there is a personality and an identity to a team's offense and a team's defense, and you're the guy who kind of swings back and forth between those two units, and, you know, you have to navigate it a little bit. Does, uh, you know, when, when you guys meet up, do you obvi- I think you probably go with the defense, right? When they say, hey, defense over here, offense over there, you, you probably walk with the defense until you're called over. I mean, that's one way of putting it. Or I get, you know, tugged on both arms by offense and the defense. You know, it's funny because I was I always try to figure out what goes on up uh, upstairs with the coaches, and you know, all the time they always tell me they're always talking back and forth about who gets me where and when, and they're always uh, you know arguing about it. But it's pretty funny to see it all unravel and unfold. During the Utah game, you got to throw a pass in a game situation. I'm glad that you got that jump pass out of your system. I know we talked about this, but you threw a nice ball. Against Utah, you got a first down on the play. You guys, you know, you came up with a big play there. Uh, you know, how'd that feel for you, playing quarterback a little bit again? Oh, you really had to bring up the uh, the, the jump pass again, man. <laughs> <laughs> no. It, here's <laughs> what... Those, here's those, how... Oh, it's so funny. We went Go to ahead. The and like, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're going to call the, the pass play. I said, all right, sweet. Let's see how this works out. <laughs> and, you know, it's all... Um, Anthony Gold wide open, just peppered it on in there from first down. You didn't float that thing, though. I mean, you put some zip on it. I had to put a little bit of zip on it. I mean, I still got some juice left. Not much, but there's still some juice. It, the funny thing was, uh, you know, the other writers are up there. You come into the game. I, I turned to them, and I said, he's going to throw this because you, it, was just, it was just time for you to throw one. And they all said he – Jonathan Smith is never going to let Jack Coletto throw again. 
And I said, he's going to throw this. And then you rolled out and you threw it. And I said, I told you. And I, I, I'd like to see a little more of that. Because the defense, you got to do that once in a while to keep the defense honest. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll keep them honest. So, I mean, we'll see, we'll see what comes to mind and how things are shaking unfold. But, you know, it's obviously working. Keep it going. So, All right. Hey, yeah. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, you, you got everything restocked on the jackhammer.com website? Everything everything, uh, everything back in stock that people can – jackhammercoletto.com, by the way, if you uh, – if you uh, want to check out his collection. But is everything back in stock now? We're a well-oiled machine now. We're rolling. <laughs> I love it. I'm on the site right now. All right, Jack Coletto, I appreciate you, man. Keep keep up the fight. We'll talk to you down the road. Great. Appreciate it. All right, there he is. <laughs> Oregon State quarterback, linebacker, place kicker. Might as well keep him out there. It's more trouble for him to run to the sideline than anything. Uh, I think, look, you got to give Oregon State credit. For, there were some people out there, and I think the natural inclination, I don't blame people who said, oh, it was a lucky win, because the game looked lost. But I will caution you. The pass to Silas Bolden on fourth down in the left corner of the end zone from Ben Gulbranson was was a terrific throw and catch. The fact that Oregon State outgained Stanford in the game, and especially in the fourth quarter, um, you know, you got to give Oregon State credit. The fact that Treshawn Harrison kept playing and made a hell of a play when a couple of Stanford defensive backs looked like they didn't know where the ball was, you know, we're not not playing great situational football there. You got to give Oregon State credit. That's not luck. You make your own luck in this game, and you make your own luck in this world. Leave it here. We got uh, the big splash coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm on the jackhammercoletto.com website right now. Got his hats back in stock. I like the hats. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, he is uh, donating a portion of the proceeds, 25% of the proceeds, to the Wounded Warrior Project. So jackhammercoletto.com is the website if you're an Oregon State fan who wants to get in on that. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the Oregon Ducks, and I think uh, many of you are, and frankly, if you're not a Duck fan, you should still be tuned into this, but a lot of discussion nationally today that makes no sense to me when it comes to the college football playoff. And this is partly why a four-team playoff is a bad idea. It's not much better than the two-team invitational that we had once upon a time. We now have a four-team invitational. There's no automatic bids. It's entirely subjective. There's a selection committee that will hole up in Dallas, Texas, and decide at the end of the year you know, who the top four teams are. But there's a whole bunch of propaganda out there right now, and it's annoying to me. It's annoying to me that people are suggesting that a you know a UCLA team that is headed into Eugene in a week could go to Eugene and lose, but then recover, go on to win the conference championship, uh, redeem itself. Let's say they beat Oregon in the conference title game in a rematch. Redeem itself and be 12-1 and and be perfectly positioned to be a college football playoff team. I heard that by more than one national pundit in the last 24 hours, who is suggesting that a 12-1 and UCLA 
with a loss to Oregon next week in Eugene would be perfectly positioned to be one of the four best teams in America. Now, I'm going to tell you what it's rooted in. It's rooted in the Los Angeles TV market. ESPN in particular, Fox to a certain extent, and some others, are guilty of pandering to the major markets. They do this on a frequent and regular basis. We all know it. I know it because I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret. I've guest hosted on those national shows. I guest hosted for Dan Patrick, and I had somebody whispering in my ear, make sure you talk about Los Angeles, make sure you talk about New York, make sure you talk about these big cities because they get mad in those major markets if you're not talking about those big markets. They hear about it. So you know that's happening at ESPN. You know that's happening on all these shoulder programming shows on Fox and FS1 and nationally on Sirius XM and what whatnot. Anybody out there who is clamoring for the big markets is talking about UCLA and USC more than they should. I think it's why you see some of the national hosts who kind of suck up to USC or UCLA now because they know they're doing the same thing the Big Ten Conference is doing. They know where the households are. They know where the bodies are. They're pandering to the market, okay? On this show, we do no pandering. We just do the show. But it's interesting to me that UCLA at 12-1, and and I agree, I think a 12-1 and conference champion in the Pac-12 should be a playoff candidate, a strong candidate for one of the four positions. Not one or two, but three or four, okay? Let's be real, being realistic. I do think UCLA, if it goes to Eugene in a week and loses and then recovers, comes back, wins the conference championship game, I do think 12-1 and UCLA should be included in the playoff. But here is where I differ from the national pundits. I also think 12-1 and Oregon, with only a loss to Georgia, should get one of those spots or should be right there. Like, we still don't know who those other teams are, so I think it's ridiculous to say that they, they are in. And I hear some people going, UCLA at 12-1, and they're in. I don't see that happening. We, how can you say that? You don't know yet. But it's interesting to me that a loss to Oregon isn't viewed as a bad loss. But Oregon's loss to Georgia, albeit 49-3, would eliminate the Ducks somehow. I said it yesterday. I'm going to double down on it. I think it's stupid. Oregon lost to Georgia. If Oregon beats you, what does that say about you? Like, you know, I don't I don't see the difference between 12 and 1 Oregon and 12 and 1 UCLA. A loss is a loss. Both of those games essentially road games, but one of them coming in week 1 and the other coming in week 7. It's a big difference to me. Or week 8? That is a huge difference to me. I actually think the 12 and 1 Oregon argument is stronger than the 12 and 1 UCLA argument by a nose. I I I can't wait for the college football playoff to expand to 12 teams. But until we get there, can we put a moratorium on saying stupid stuff? Like things that you don't know to be true. 12 and 1 UCLA, can we really say they're in? We can just say they'd be a strong candidate. 12 and 1 Oregon, can we really say they're in? We can say they they'd be a strong candidate. Can we just leave it there and have that be okay? That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. 
Well, the Pac-12 Network is suing the Dish Network, one of its broadcast partners. Apparently, Dish Network is withholding payments and violating the terms of their distribution agreement. Pac-12 seeking damages and injunctive relief to recoup the license fees that Dish has withheld. John Wilder of the San Jose Mercury News reporting this. Uh, According to the lawsuit, Dish pays a monthly fee based on the number of subscribers to the Pac-12 network. The Dish is entitled to a rebate if the network doesn't broadcast a minimum number of games. Typically, that's 36 games. But in 2020, the Pac-12 network showed only one game. That was the COVID season. And so Dish, uh, you know, took the rebate in 2020, but now is withholding. Uh, the dispute is not limited to the COVID season. So it's really interesting to me that Dish's deal with the Pac-12 network caused poor distribution, but now it turns out Dish also isn't paying for that distribution. Pac-12 network locked up with Dish. This is all a migraine. I am told by people who are smarter than me, more connected in that industry than me, that this is something Dish does all the time. They do it routinely. It is designed to help them not have to pay their bill until later. You know how some people will get a bill and they'll stick it in a drawer and they'll go, I, I don't want to deal with this right now. Dish essentially doing that. Pac-12 Network suing them for not paying. That's the big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. Does anybody have Dish anymore? Do you guys have Dish? Do you watch things on Dish? No. Anybody? No. Feels like that. What did, didn't that used to be a bigger thing than it is now? Yeah, to have like a big... You know, I think it's just the, the satellite dish, right? Like that was like the the way to show that you had a lot of money. I feel like I put think, that in your, put that in your front yard. I yeah, think it's very uncommon to have not very uncommon, but less and less people have cable now, and more and more people have Fubo or YouTube TV, and Pac-12 Network isn't active there. So that's that's a huge problem. Yeah, I think uh, there are there are, is a looming issue there with Dish, the uh, Pac-12 Network, and of course. The cord cutters are going to win. It's just a matter of when they go all in, they being the Pac-12 and their distribution rights for their college football games. Uh, the 4 o'clock hour is ahead. We're going to start with Punch It Audio. Anna will join us. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, still ahead as well. B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. This hour, Anna will join us. Uh, we'll have a heated discussion, I'm sure, on some topic. Happens, happens every day. Uh... We'll also play some punch and audio. Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach. I saw. I see where Portland State's got some beer mugs going. Are they giving away beer this weekend? We're going to find out from Bruce Barnum. All of that uh, still ahead on today's show. How are you guys doing? What's going on? Sean, how you doing, man? Halloween's coming, man. You got me fired up a couple minutes ago talking about the UCLA versus uh, yeah. versus Oregon thing and then a national perspective. But other than that, I'm good. I'm, I'm still checking the mailbox every day, uh, waiting for that Halloween costume to go mm-hmm. because, you know, Halloween's expensive for someone like me. So I want to I wanna dress up, but, you oh, know. I got you. Not lying, got you. not going to lie. I'm, I've been waiting to see if, uh, if you actually did mail me a costume. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think I just said that I was mailing well, you a Well, it's been costume? a couple of weeks, so of course there's a little bit of doubt we, in my mind. No, 
we had a little issue. We had a little snafu there. We had a little snafu on the order. So I got you covered. I actually switched your costume. <laughs> the uh, y- your original costume. I was originally getting you a USC Trojan costume with the full Trojan helmet <laughs> and the strap across you and a sword and because you were on the bandwagon for USC. Uh huh. And then. Uh, I got a notice saying that one of the items was on back order, and I uh, happened to ask Anna, and she said, "No, no, no, the, your second idea was better." Okay, I'm looking forward to So you're getting the that. second idea. The USC thing's funny, but it I was, was like, yeah. I, I need to double down. I'm not a USC fan. I know. I think you know, maybe I'm a little bit higher on them than I should be. Maybe you guys are a little bit lower. We need to meet in the middle. All right. I, so what did you get fired up about? I just think that again. Okay, so the other day I, you know, gotten a little YouTube riff uh, with some SEC honks. I basically commented on a national uh, radio. It's Joel Klatt. Okay. He's talking about uh, the Pac-12. Who's going to win it, USC or UCLA? And I comment, Oregon. You know, I think Oregon's got a good shot. And then I get like 18 replies from all these SEC people saying 49-3, 49-3. You know, mm. Oregon's not taken seriously because they lost to Georgia by a million points week one. I just think that UCLA and USC are taken seriously because USC had Rice week one. UCLA had some cupcake week one. And those teams get to be darlings nationwide because Oregon chose to go play Georgia. And I think it's affecting their season. When I think Oregon's just as good, I think they're going to prove that next weekend as UCLA and USC. And yet people don't get to take them seriously. No one talks about them nationally because they chose to go play the best team in the country with a brand new head coach in, in Atlanta week one. So do you think if – and I agree. I Right now I'm leaning towards Oregon beating UCLA. They're at home, uh, and I think Oregon is the most complete team in the conference. And, uh, you know, look, I think those are two good teams, but I do think a 12, whoever's 12-1 and one at the end of the rainbow should get pl- serious playoff consideration. I need to see the rest of the field, but, man, I, I got to think they're right in there. Do you think the narrative, if Oregon beats UCLA – Will be Oregon is great. Something has changed. They 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 are they have improved. Or you think it's going to be? You know what? Maybe there's not a great team in the Pac-12. I, I'm leaning towards the latter because I think no matter what happens with Oregon the rest of the season, even let's say they run the table like you were talking about, they're 12 and one. And I have to remind folks that a team hasn't ran the table in the Pac-12 since 2010. National media and the College Football Playoff Committee. This is a subjective sport, right? They're gonna think. You know, oh, we can't put Oregon in the playoff because guess who they're going to play again? It's going to be Georgia, and we saw what happened with them week one versus UCLA or USC. If they're in that that position, they have one loss just like Oregon. Even if Oregon beats them, well, USC and UCLA haven't we haven't seen what they look like against a national power. So I just think that Oregon's going to be unfairly judged the rest of the season because of their week one, which you know the sport's all about improvement. It's all about conference play, and yet. You know, I, USC and UCLA, maybe it's the L.A. market thing, but I also think it's a, it's a case of who they had in their non-conference is why they're getting respected more nationwide. Yeah, I, I also think there is a, there is a uh, bias against the Pac-12 where, you know, I think the Pac-12 has to almost be perfect. And Oregon was not perfect in week one, but I agree. I, I think you should be allowed to, you know, a loss is a loss. And I, I kind of think a loss to Georgia is a better loss, but you know, people are going. How do you erase that first impression, Stephen? Where do you stand on this? Uh, the national pundits. What does Oregon have to do to prove it belongs? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much run the table. I think that's the only way that they're going to do it nationally. And, you know, I think I, I was still high on Oregon after the loss of Georgia. I was just willing to give them the shot and say, you know what, it was week one, new coach, new system against the national champions. It's going to be tough, and that's exactly what it was. But Oregon has bounced back and been the best offense in the Pac-12. So I think I think nationally, though, just to get the respect, people are never going to forget that loss to Georgia. And that's the thing is when these Pac-12 teams play SEC teams, it doesn't matter if the game's close. The Pac-12 has to win that game to get any kind of respect nationally. If it's a close loss, nobody cares. It has to be a win. And so for it to be a blowout, people are just never going to forget it. And that's what they'll always bring up and say, well, they don't belong. They don't belong. And they can't compete against these teams in the South. So I do think they can't, Oregon has to run the table to even be considered to get to this uh, you know, college football playoff. If, if Oregon plays Georgia right now, what's the score? Uh, I'd still take Georgia. Me to too. Win, to but I think that. Oregon's so much better than that week one. I think it's 31-10. Uh, I don't I, – I, I think that first week was really hard for Oregon because I think it had a couple of things. One, it was Dan Lanning's first game. It's Bo Nix's first game starting for Oregon. There's a lot of – you know, uh, there, it wasn't a lot of familiarity for, for Oregon. It was also a home game for, for Georgia. It was a nationally televised game, and Georgia showed up to play, no doubt. Like, you know, we've had Georgia callers who call in. Like, it was a – Big game for Georgia. Every game's a big game for Georgia. But it was an especially big game because it was the first game of the season. I think it. I saw Georgia not play as well in the subsequent two or three weeks. Now, they still were dominant, but they just didn't play as well against some of that other competition. And then I kind of wondered if, you know, if Oregon would have been better off playing them in week two or three because then Georgia's not going, hey, this is the first game we've played after winning the national championship. Yeah, no, I think there was a lot of factors working against Oregon in week one. It was, again, everyone's first game, plus Kirby Smart. You know, he knew Dan Lanning. He knew Bo Nix. You know, he kind of owns Bo Nix. But I don't think that's a reason to potentially just, you know, one right off Oregon this entire regular season, like I'm actively seeing national media do, and two, potentially keep them off the playoff if they happen to get that far. Um, You know, I think... Uh, just you talking about the hypothetical, I know it's not your opinion, but just talking about the hypothetical and that some people think if Oregon goes 12-1, and they shouldn't be in the playoff. I think that is just, it, it, re- it really irks me because I think, you know, it just, that's everything that's wrong with college football right there. The only thing I think, if Oregon were to play USC and Oregon beat USC in the regular season, I think that's when they Oregon would get their national respect. But since they don't play them in the regular season, it's going to have to be in the Pac-12 title game. And so for that, I do think... If they get there and they beat USC, that's what Oregon gets their respect. I think Oregon's got to do a couple things. And let's talk about this for a second. It, let's focus singularly on what Oregon needs to do to get to the playoff. I think they've got to be 12-1 and with the only loss to Georgia. I think they're going to need style points against UCLA, and they're going to need style points if they presumably get to Las Vegas in the Pac-12 championship game. They're going to need style points in that game too, and I think it matters who they play. Uh, they're already going to have played Utah. So I think they need USC to be their opponent in the Pac-12 championship game in order to get the validation. And I think they need that to be an undefeated USC team that they play and beat in their 12-1. and They leapfrog USC, who, would, who presumably by that point, if they were undefeated, would be ranked in the top four uh, in the college football rankings. So, you know, guys, if, they, if that's the scenario... Wins over UCLA, wins over Utah, wins over USC with some style. 
I don't know how they keep them out. I, I just don't know how they keep them out in general. If Look, we're talking about 2010, the last time that someone went undefeated in Pac-12. And this is a better Pac-12 conference than we've seen. Uh, John, you've, you cover the Pac-12. How, where, where does this year's Pac-12 conference compare to, like, last year? Last year, Oregon wasn't even that good. They, they were the second-best team in the conference, or previous years. Let's go. Let's go back to twenty uh, to twenty ten, and and you know, look at that at what happened in twenty ten because it was really interesting when you go back to that season. You know, it, there was a lot made, and people don't talk about it of the fact that UCLA was down that year. USC was so so. Washington was seven and six. You know, USC had five losses. Washington had six. Uh, UCLA was four and eight. There were some powers that were down at the time that I think allowed, set up Oregon to, uh, to be in good position. And you know, also, when you go back to 2010, the last time anybody went undefeated, you, know, you don't have Colorado and Utah in the conference yet. So there's no Utah. There's USC down. They're 5-4 and four in conference play. UCLA's 2-7 in conference play. Washington was 5-4. and four. Uh, I'd written about it before, and, and Oregon fans got mad at me, but I said, look, this was lined up for Oregon. Oregon was really good. I think Oregon deserved to be in the national championship game, and they damn near won it. But it was lined up in a way for them to go undefeated. People don't remember the second-place team in the conference that year was Stanford. Stanford's only loss was to Oregon. They went 8-1 and one in conference play. It was Oregon and Stanford. There was nobody else in the Pac-12. So Washington being down, UCLA being down, USC being down, set that up for Oregon in, in 2010. I'll argue that this season, you've got USC kind of back with Lincoln Riley. I'm not sold totally yet because they're going to go to Salt Lake City on Saturday, and I think they, you know, they, they could be in for uh, their first loss of the season. But you got Utah, not a pushover. You got UCLA looking pretty darn good, best that they've looked in a long time. Uh, Washington, Washington State, Oregon State, very serviceable, can beat anybody on a given day. Like, you've got some problems in this conference that didn't exist in 2010. I think it'd be more impressive now. Exactly. So I think this is the best Pac-12 conference that I've seen in a couple of years at least, and yet we're talking about, like, okay, for Oregon to make the playoff and overcome the Georgia loss, they'd have, need, they would need style points, they would need, you know, USC, and they would have to beat them pretty handedly. Like, I think that's ridiculous to win 12 straight games, run the table in the conference. Like, I think... I, I think a one-loss Pac-12 champion should be in no matter what, especially if it's Oregon, because Oregon, you know, starts 0-1. They end up 12-1. I think it's a good point. I, I'm excited to see where it goes. It, college football is doing everything it should do. It's entertaining us. It's keeping us engaged. It's keeping us locked in. But I fear, in the end, that what is going to happen is that the, the selection committee is going to leave the Pac-12 out, especially if it's Oregon. And we're all going to be belly aching about, you know, no respect. Uh, and the truth is, 12 and 1 UCLA, that's no more impressive than 12 and 1 Oregon. 12 and 1 USC, no more impressive than 12 and 1 Oregon. I don't know if the Pac 12 is going to have a team that goes undefeated in conference play. But right now, I, I think Oregon's the most complete team. And I think offensively, defensively, they've got it all together. I've got questions about USC's defense. I've got questions about UCLA and their competition that they've played. Let's see them outside of the Rose Bowl. I, I have questions about Utah. You, you know, the, Utah, the shine has come off Utah. But, and, and then when you look at the middle part of this conference, 
you know, Washington State's got a great defense, no offense, um, you know, or sporadic offense. And Washington, opposite, you know, I, I really love their offense, but, man, they're not stopping anybody. So I'm looking at all this happen, and I'm going, okay, uh, whoever comes out of this conference, I would definitely like to see them mix it up in a playoff. It'll be a crying shame if they don't get there. Anna's popping in the studio next. Uh, we got Punch It Audio still ahead. Bruce Barnum will be with us as well. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna, how you doing? Swell. You're doing swell? I think. Did you see the video of Devontae Adams uh, shoving the uh, guy uh, off uh, after the game last night? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. What I did. did. Okay, so this is a contractor who's holding some sound equipment. Adams is frustrated. They <laughs> lost the game. Shoves the guy down. Goes to the locker room. When he's asked about it, uh, he says, you know, hey, he's really sorry for it. He was having a bad moment. He uh, apologized uh, via Twitter afterwards, but it bothered me. I, I, you know, if you're sorry, apologize to the guy after you shoved him. Yeah, I had the same thought when I read the Twitter apology. I was like, well, it's not that hard to probably go figure out that guy's name and go apologize in some manner directly. So I felt like the apology was like for the rest of us to be like, hey, I'm not such a bad guy. Look, I'm apologizing, you know? Yeah. So that's uh, not me. And by the way, apologizing on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's weird to me that he would say, I hope he sees this. <laughs> like right. if he really is sorry. Right. You know, you know, it's how easy it is to, you know, here's a here's an example how easy it is to find out who this guy is. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was wondering about this Stanford, Oregon State football game. I was trying to find a photographer who is already shooting the game for Stanford, that Stanford had credentialed for the game. Mm -hmm. So I emailed the Stanford Sports Information Director and said, hey, I'm trying to get a photographer who's already credentialed for the game to uh, you know, get me a photo from the game because I want to get a photo or two for johnconzano.com. Yeah. Within a couple minutes, he sends me a screenshot of every photographer that he has credentialed, the name, the phone number, the email address. Right. Like, here's, here's everything you need in one place. Yeah. How hard would it have been for Devante Adams Not hard. to have his PR team go, hey, Chiefs, find out who that guy was? It would have, they would have found out in like 30 seconds. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I feel like the apology wasn't really toward the guy. It was more for the rest of us to be like, I'm not such a bad guy. Look, I'm issuing an apology. And look, I, I'm on record. I'm on record. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's not me. I hope you see this. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. You've been you've been on the streets as a reporter. Mm -hmm. And you've been in situations with protests and you know riots and you know you've been in those situations where reporters will get tear gassed or they'll get pushed or they'll get shoved or whatnot. Yeah, it's really fun. As a media member, <laughs> when I'm on the sideline of the football game, yeah. I know that it's it's buyer beware. I'm totally. on the sideline. If a player comes running out of bounds, I better get out of way yeah. out the way. Yeah. If I don't get out of the way, I'm going to get trucked. It's on you. It's on me. It is on you. I, I assume that risk. Yes. Do you assume that risk as a reporter in the wild, or where does it cross the line 
if somebody shoves a reporter down like Devontae Adams did? Because it, it appears that the police are investigating this. Well, it's... Ugh, the police are investigating They're investigating it. it. Okay. And I think it wouldn't have been an investigation if he had just stopped and gone, hey, my bad, bad yeah. moment by me. What an idiot I am. I mean, it's it's one thing to be on a sideline and something inadvertent happens. Like you're in the path because a, a, a throw, you know, is a ball is thrown and the player runs into you or you see it all the time in NBA games. Like, my goodness, I feel bad for, like, the photographers that are just, like, mowed over by, like, the seven-foot-tall player, you know, that's ramming into him. Like, that's different than from what happened here. Um, I'm not trying to make excuses either for the football player, but it's, it is one of those things where it's like you are playing in a game that is really intense, highly, like, high physical impact, some use the word violent, right? And so things happen on a field. Like, uh, like if you look at the sports science behind the testosterone that is just required to do that job, like it's sometimes hard, I think, for football players to turn it off. Again, not making excuses for him, but I, I can see how things happen when you're really fired up in and around and after a game, especially if you're frustrated. Um, for me, as a reporter, uh, yeah, I, I covering protests, it's on the reporter to know that you're going into a situation where you might be tear gas, so you're bringing things with you that can protect you in situations like that. You have to mitigate for a lot of different circumstances, and you have to make judgment calls on the fly of if you're going to be caught between protesters and police, if you're going to be pelted with rubber bullets or, uh, you know, in the line of fire, like you have to make that decision of whether it's worth it uh, literally on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I think you're right about the testosterone that goes into it. And a lot of people are excusing Devontae Adams going, look, he's playing in a heated environment that is very physical on the field. He's walking off. He's frustrated right after the final you know gun goes off and somebody's in his way and he gave a shove mm. um i'll buy that i'll even allow him to have a bad moment let's just say he's having a bad moment yeah 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 but he said in his tweet the second he pushed the guy he realized he was wrong yeah he didn't look like it <laughs> well because if the second that that happens you realize you're wrong Reach down and pick the guy up off the yeah. ground and apologize. We've right? all done that. We've all done things where, like, I mean, can we all acknowledge we've all had moments where oh, there's a bad moment? Totally. Yeah. And you realize, like, oh, I'm totally out of line. Yeah. I'm wrong. My bad. And yeah. you realize it pretty quickly. Sure. And even if you don't, even if it's 30 seconds later, yeah. he could have walked back out. I know. I know. In I fact, know. is. You know, look, he he didn't think this was going to be a problem. And when it was, <laughs> then he went to Twitter with it. That's what it comes but down to. But that's the funny part to me, to think that with the world watching and a thousand cameras trained on you after a game that you don't think it's going to be a problem. Like, these players are under a microscope when they're anywhere near the field. Heck, the players are under a microscope even when they're in supposedly the confines of a practice. Hello, Draymond Green, right? Like like yeah. that whole situation.
right? Right. I also think there's another element here, too, because we see it. You mentioned in basketball, like, you know, we've talked about the fans being too close to the court. I think there's so many people on the sidelines now at the end of an NFL game or a college football game. I don't know what all these people are doing. Like, some of them are working. That guy was legitimately working. Yeah. But there's a lot of people milling around, team (laughs) personnel. I'm not even sure what they're doing. I I noticed at a college football game, I'm down on the sidelines, there's a lot of boosters down there at the end of the game who are just on the sideline hanging out. Yeah. And I'm like, look, you know, as 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 a writer... You are allowed to go down onto the field in the Pac-12 conference and in most college football stadiums. They allow you to be down on the field before the game. Then when the game starts, you've got to be up in the press box. Uh Then with five minutes left in the game, if you're in the stadium, you'll notice this migration of uh, non-athletic-looking people who are going down to the field. Those are the writers (laughs) from the press box who are going down to the field. We're allowed to be down there five minutes to go. Yeah. And... You know, it's supposed to be so you don't get caught in the throng of fans after the game, and you can easily get to the locker room. Okay. So you just follow the team after the game ends. You're on the sideline. You follow the team to the locker room, to the interview area, whatever. Yeah. So you don't get caught in everything. For the same reason, the assistant coaches who are up in the box, in the press box, they hold the elevators for those guys at also five minutes. So if you're a media member trying to get to the field and you don't make the five-minute mark, yeah. you have to take the stairs. <laughs> so you'll see the media members bail at about seven minutes to go so they don't get caught <laughs> by the elevator being held, go down to the field. I did it at Salt Lake City, you know, whatever it was, two weeks ago yeah. uh, when Oregon State was playing there. You do it at Autzen Stadium. You do it at Research Stadium, whatnot. doesn't matter. But, uh, you know, there's a whole process to this. Yeah. But I've often looked around, and I'm looking at this sideline as Devontae Adams is leaving. There's a lot of people down there. I don't know what they're doing. Well, and you know the dynamic, too. If people aren't particularly uh, comfortable or it's not a familiar scene to them, what I ha- what I see happens a lot in situations like that is there's no situational awareness because they're just so caught up in the moment they're so excited to be down there and on the sidelines that there's almost like a cognitive disconnect between what is happening and the impact that it might have on you if you happen to be in the path of somebody who's running to catch a ball. Yeah. In the same way that I can't tell you the number of times that, like, God bless the news photographers I've worked with over the years who are so caught up in the moment and doing their job they're looking at a scene through the viewfinder of their big like TV camera. Yeah. And they also have like that disconnect where they're just so focused on capturing the moment um, and capturing the image and and they they almost irrespective of bodily harm that is due to them, you know, that is imminent as somebody is about to crash into them. Look, it, I I played high school football. I played community college football i i know what a football looks when it's in the air but i'll tell you that when you're down on the sideline you're right there's a disconnect between what is happening on the field and where you are standing three yards off the field okay so you feel like there's an imaginary boundary there that cannot be crossed Uh until you see it crossed and (laughs) it's too late at that point yeah so i am often on the sideline and I will see a passing situation, and I'll look at the receiver, 
and I'll go, oh, his split is a little narrow. He's running an out pattern here. This ball could come to the sideline. Like, I'm anticipating that in my mind as I'm watching it, and then as it's unfolding, I'm grabbing people around me (laughs) and going, hey, hey, like, the ball's coming our way, like, because I don't want to see some old – Geezer get trucked <laughs> with the football, but it happens all the time. It does. You know where else it happens? Where? In the pregame warmups. Oh, yeah. Because pregame, I was down on the field in Salt Lake City for Utah, Oregon State. It was down on the field like an hour before the game. Players weren't even in uniform yet. They were just out jogging around. I was just standing down there, started talking to one of the referees, started talking to one of the uh, assistant coaches at Oregon State. You know, you get, you get some good material out yeah, of this. Good right. conversations, good networking, but... I'm well aware that the punters and kickers and quarterbacks and receivers are all working. Yeah. And there's a lot of heads up going right, on. Right, right. I see all of a sudden down in one corner of the end zone about a four-year-old kid who is unsupervised. Yeah. Who is running around like the pylon that's yeah. down on one corner. Oregon State's punter happens to be punting towards oh, no. the end zone. Oh, no. And I looked up and the referee was standing by me and I said, that kid, where's his parent? Yeah. And he goes, I don't know. I go, I go. that kid's going to get hit. Yeah. Because you, all it takes is the punter angling one to the corner, oh, and the, the punt returner's not looking for the kid. Right. Like, that four-year-old kid's going to get clobbered. And so we were both kind of going, <laughs> where's mom? Where's yeah. dad? Like, what? how is that kid on the field right now? Yeah. But it happens all the time. All the time. I've, all the time. I've been really close to being hit a few times yeah. in the pregame. Yeah. Where the ball, like, because in the pregame, it's not just one. You're watching, like, in a normal game, you're watching the quarterback. Right. But in the pregame, somebody, both teams are punting. Both kickers are kicking. You have multiple punters and kickers going. You have multiple quarterbacks going. But Some, not just that. Know. Like, there's so much going on. Like, the marching band is warming up. Yes. The cheerleaders are practicing. Like, from a sensory standpoint, there's so much, like, intake going on that if you're not really focused on what's happening on the field, then there is a high probability that you will just not be aware and get hurt. You have to be, have your head on a swivel like it's a 4th of July and your kids are setting off fireworks. That's what you have to be like on the sideline before the game. <laughs> All right, leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. More ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Now the Houston Astros came from behind in the bottom of the ninth, walked off the Mariners 8-7. Stephen, were you uh, were you paying attention to that? Robbie Ray on the mound, two outs, ninth inning, two on. Uh, you know, we've got a friend. Well, I'll tell you about our friend later, but uh, tell me the reaction you had as you saw 8-7 Astros, a final now in game one of the American League Division Series. Yeah, you know, they uh, Robbie Ray was was – kind of announced to be the Game 3 starter in Seattle. That's what it was thought to be because they'd come out before the series said George Kirby was going to work out of the bullpen but could also start. So it was an interesting decision to have Robbie Ray out of the bullpen considering how bad he's been struggling lately. Uh, it just seemed like bad news to bring him in in that situation. Then, uh, I mean, Jordan Alvarez just absolutely crushed that baseball. It it was a uh, no-doubter. Not a cheap one. Not, no, not it was a, a no-doubter for sure. All right, here's how it sounded. For uh, for baseball, Alvarez launches deep right field, and this one is gone. And the Astros walk him off in Game One. 
Air Jordan uh, goes deep uh, to right field there as uh, the Mariners let one get away in game one. They had that. They had a 4 nothing lead, a 5-1 lead. 7-3 uh, into the bottom of the eighth. Uh, man, really tough to see, especially a team that had, you know, the Mariners got it done with pitching all year long. And when it was 4 nothing, I told Anna, I said, they got this. Like, this is their, this is their game to lose <laughs> at this point. Um, we have a friend. We're not going to name his name, but what did he post on social media, Anna? As a Dodger fan, he says, I would like to encourage Mariners fans to begin investigating the cheating now. Don't wait until next season. Banging on the trash cans. Are there any trash cans involved? Are, are the Astros the most hated team in baseball still? They yes. gotta be, right? They have to be. <laughs> Them are the Yankees. And yeah, every year, I, you know, I'm a baseball casual, but every year I, I get ready for the playoffs and I see, oh, the top two seeds, Yankees, Astros, and the AL. It's like, who the heck am I supposed to root for? I'm not a Mariners fan. I didn't grow up that way, but I am rooting like hell for them in this series because it's the Astros. Uh, the Astros get game one of this series. Uh, it, who's, who's second? If the Astros are the most hated team in baseball, who is second in your mind? You get to vote. It's got to be the Yankees or the Dodgers, right? Who Pick one. You're going to pick Yankees. one. Who's your vote? I'd, your go vote Yan- I'd go Yankees followed by the Red Sox. Red Sox. I'm going Dodgers. I, I don't like the fact that they're outspending and out you know winning 111 games. Can't stand the Dodgers. Anna? Uh, yeah, I don't have your like shade against the Dodgers. I think that's your it's, Giants it's born talking. It's my, born from my Giants are showing. Yeah, your Giants are showing. Um. <laughs> Uh, probably the Yankees, but I, you know, yeah. Big markets. West Coast, East Coast. Big markets. The Astros, it's the cheating. It's it's the fact that they never got... See, Major League Baseball did this. If Major League Baseball had punished the Astros, stripped them of their World Series championship, I think people would feel differently about this version of the Astros, but there's there's too much. It's too soon. There's too much. They didn't get their... They didn't get justice, and, and I think the, the rest of us don't like them because of it. We had to settle for an asterisk, right? Was there even an asterisk? No, they let them keep their championship. They just, you know, they There's just a shamed them. proverbial asterisk in everybody's mind. Yeah, they took the trash cans out of the dugouts, and they said no more banging on the trash cans. But uh, there it is, as game one of that American League Division Series goes to the Astros. Uh, I wrote today at johnconzano.com about uh, Nova Newcomer. And for people who know Friends of Baseball, a nonprofit that operates here in the state of Oregon, uh, Nova Newcomer has run that organization for, for years. She's now in the big leagues. She is a 45-year-old rookie with the Seattle Mariners. She is the director of community relations for the Mariners right now. And she's a really good story. Anna, you knew her because you, you played little league softball with her. And you went to high school with her. Yeah. Tell us about Nova Newcomer. Uh, just one of the most remarkable human beings that I've ever met. I mean, the... Uh, challenges in her life that she's overcome, but to live the way that she does with gratitude and kindness toward others and not with a chip on her shoulder because of the things that she experienced is uh, amazing. I mean, she just has this heart for the community and she just is smart and passionate and is one of those people when she goes and does something like she's just all in, all in. You know, 100%. She, for people who don't know, if you want to read the story, read the column, go to johnconzano.com. But 
it essentially uh, her parents dealt with substance abuse. She was removed at age 12 from the home by Child Protective Services along with two half-siblings. But she had a real love for baseball and hung around what was Civic Stadium and PGE Park and later uh, you know, lost its minor league baseball team. But she was working at the stadium selling souvenirs and just being around the game. And you really talk about a kid who needed sports in her life. She told me that you know, some of the only sanity that she had in her life because her home life was so messy was being at the stadium, watching a triple-A baseball game, or playing Little League where she played Little League softball. She said those things were tent poles in her life. And it's not surprising that she gravitated towards a nonprofit, Friends of Baseball, that helps to create opportunities for kids who are underserved, who need sports in their life and need structure in their life. And, you know, she it's just a great story about the game of baseball putting its arm around a little girl and saying, hey, I got you. Uh, and now Nova Newcomer with the Seattle Mariners as uh, as somebody who is out there in the community helping baseball reach some kids that really need it in their lives. So really cool to see that and gives you another reason to root for the Mariners who dropped a heartbreaking game tonight uh, or to, tonight in Houston, but today for us. Really difficult to see them lose that way uh, because, uh, you know, they're underdogs in this series. But uh, 7-5 lead turns into an 8-7 loss. By the way, it was an 0-1 pitch. That, that's painful. Uh, want you to leave it here. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, will join us. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Dovetailing on what we were talking about in the last segment, what did sports do for you as a kid? What did sports do for you? We talked about the story I wrote at johnconzano.com about the Seattle Mariners executive who, by the way, still lives in Portland and commutes and works halftime in Seattle, halftime at home in Portland. She's got four kids here and family here and is just shuttling back and forth at this point. But what did sports do for you? Steven, Anna, Sean, what did it do for you? Oh, man, it was such an escape for me. I mean, my home life was pretty chaotic and crazy and weird. And so the structure of sports was incredibly valuable to me. Um, it was a confidence builder for me from the inside out. It's one of those things where it's like you and I were talking today about the difference of telling your kids, hey, I'm proud of you, versus the kid actually having that confidence from within that they are proud of themselves. So that's one thing that it did for me. And then obviously, like, I am a huge proponent of team sports because, you know, I essentially was raised as an only child with the age difference between me and my older siblings. So um, being on a team sport and having that accountability for when you screw up, like life is full of screw ups. There's sports is full of screw ups and the ability to go my bad and own that and then move on and know that that was okay was incredibly valuable. Steven, how about you? Yeah, for me, it was a lot of confidence, right? Like, you know, I wasn't always necessarily comfortable with myself, but, like, on the basketball court or on the baseball field, like, I felt comfortable and I felt confident. I didn't worry about even fans watching. Like, I didn't care. Um, and so for that, it was that. And then, you know, a lot of just competition things. You know, it, it 
really uh, emphasize how to work hard and if you really want something like you have to work hard and you have to improve yourself, you can't, you're actually going to get it. Like you or you know, you make your own luck basically. So uh, those were the two big things for me. For me, it was always just something to look forward to, you know, but whether it was watching sports or participating in sports where, you know, if I was struggling with something, you know, school wasn't going well, uh, friendship wasn't going well. Like it was always just an escape for me, like thinking, oh, I have a, you know, I, this this is hard right now, but I have a basketball game uh, on Thursday or like, oh, you know, the Ducks get to play this week. And like, it was always just kind of a distraction. It was something to look forward to. It was something to talk with my friends about. So it was always just kind of uh, an escape from some of the harder parts. Uh, of life i want to put this out to the audience as you hear uh us talking about this what did sports do for you as a kid 503-417-7575 easy answer for me is like you know it led to a profession right but (laughs) but it did more i i think sports taught me how to how to fail more than anything you know what i mean yeah like there's a lot of failure in youth (laughs) sports there's a lot of failure in life and I look back upon the experiences I had at like 9, 10, 11, 12 in particular in youth sports, and it was like the first time in your life that it's you out there at the bat or on the field playing soccer, baseball, whatever you were playing, it's a safe place to fail. And I think we we learned that failure is part of the process. Like you always hear like successful people who are quoted and they'll say, you know, you know, I, I, you know, the, somebody who, you know, fails and gets back up is, you know, that's how you succeed, right? Like, you know, there's all these cool quotes about getting back up after yeah. you get knocked down. But I honestly think, like, that's resilience. And I think resilience is, in a lot of ways, I don't think I'm the smartest person. <laughs> I really don't. I don't necessarily know if I'm the hardest working person. I work hard. But I'm, I'm pretty damn resilient. And I have failed and failed and failed, and I'm like that. I always compare myself to that little, what's that vacuum cleaner that bounces off the walls? The Roomba. The Roomba. (laughs) I'm a Roomba. And I went, no, this didn't work. Let me go in this direction. Oh, this didn't work. Let me go in this direction. Oh, this is a dead end. Let me go in this direction. And I really think sports helped shape me in that way, and it taught me that failure is part of the process, Uh, you know, and successful people have a lot of failure in in their wake. But that's like when you hear about parents that try to game the system right now in favor of their kids or they're just constantly moving their kid from club team to club team, like that's the part of it that is missing in the sports experience. It's like if you're trying to game it so hard so that your kid never has to sit a season on the bench and feel what that is like and have to work harder to earn their time back on the court or field or wherever it may be, then I feel like a lot of parents are doing their kid a disservice by not giving them that. And I think if, you know, I always say bad things happen. I mean that. Like, I think it's one of the hardest things to teach kids is resilience. And I I remember coaching our oldest daughter in volleyball when she was in, like, third or fourth grade. And we had a real problem when things would be going great on the court We'd be up like eight to two. Yeah. And suddenly we get a bad call. Yeah. Okay. Or somebody would make a bad play. And man, we would just go to pieces. Yeah. And it was like, it wasn't just one point. It was, it was like a landslide. Yeah. Where all of a sudden we couldn't do anything right. Right. And so I was really struggling with how do you teach a kid how to be resilient? 
Because what you need is you need a bad moment followed by a regrouping and then leave it in your wake. Don't let that bad moment affect, you know, the next moment, you know, as much as you can. And how do you teach that? And so what I what I leaned on was the experiences I had as a as an athlete in high school and even in youth sports where I had coaches who would actually create sudden change moments in practice you know like we're scrimmaging and the coach would grab the ball and go bad call went against you other team has the ball and everybody would be going what 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 but you had to deal with that kind of you know change up of moment because what do we see happen in life unfair things happen bad things happen you lose your job somebody gets sick you know a relationship breaks down you have a bad boss you need to be able to have had some life experience as a kid in dealing with adversity or a bad teammate or a bad coach or a bad call in order to navigate that stuff. You make the playoff for the first time in 21 years and you blow a 4-0 lead. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's a moment. It's one game. You know what I thought when that happened? Yeah. I saw the Mariners lose 8-7. I wanted to say it just counts for one and move forward yeah. because there's no – point in the Mariners dwelling on losing 8-7 and giving up a two-run lead in the ninth with two outs and a strike on the hitter. There's no point. There's no good that comes out of that. And I and we will now see what kind of resilience the Mariners have. Right. Stephen, do you relate to that as, as somebody who played basketball? Like, you know, the ability to have a safe place to fail. Yeah, I mean, especially basketball, like, you're going to miss a lot of shots. Like, and you just have to have no conscience about it. You just have to say, okay, well, I I practice. I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna get my shot off again. Like that's just the way you got to play with basketball. And I, you know, I was taught that uh, when I was in seventh grade. My seventh grade coach, you know, I was a I was a new kid playing in a new league, and uh, so I started off the bench. But my first game, I think I scored like 25 off the bench. And so he came up to me the next practice and asked me. He goes, Steven, do you think you're the best player on the team? And I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't know, maybe. And he's like, you are the best player on the team. He goes, are you the best player on the court when you play the other team? I go, no. He goes, yeah, you are. He goes, you need to have confidence when you play. And so, yeah, like, you're totally right. Like, you just have to forget about it and move on to the next play because that's all that matters in sports. You can't affect what happened before. You can only go what's going forward. Anna, you hit on something with parents trying to game the system. Parents want their kids to have successful experiences. I get it. When our kid takes a test, I want her to get an A on it. But I also know that there's something to be learned, you know, if she bombs the test and then she has to do some soul searching and go, okay, why did I not get a good grade on that test? Or why didn't I play well in this game? Maybe I didn't prepare. Maybe I didn't practice. Maybe I was distracted. Maybe I got a bad night of sleep. Maybe I didn't know the material. Like there's something to be learned from failure. I think parents who are continually trying to game the system to build confidence in their kid are missing the point of confidence. Confidence is not built from success. Confidence is built from overcoming failure. When you are an athlete on the field, and time and again I have seen this, Tom Brady has all kinds of failure in his past. He has confidence because he knows he can overcome. He will overcome. He can come back. There's nothing, there's no situation, there's no dynamic that he doesn't feel that he could come back from because he's done that. He has failed and come back from it. I mean, along those same lines, though, like the Mariners can't just like put this game purely in the rearview mirror and go, ah, whatever, you know, we drop game one, move on. 
they do have to go back and analyze what went wrong. Right. Like in the same way that Dan Lanning says that he went back and studied the crap out of the film from the Georgia game to figure out where their weaknesses were for Oregon. Like the Mariners have to go back and do that now and analyze what went wrong in this game one. Yeah, they got to look at, you know, especially the ninth inning, what they did that they could do differently. But you also, if you're a player in that locker room, you want to come in and you want to pick up your teammates and you want to go, look, we had them. 7-5. We can get them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, or they can get them. You know, on, on tomorrow's show, we got Ryan Divish coming on who covers the Mariners. We'll ask him what that clubhouse was like and after the uh, after the game. He'll he'll join us from Houston tomorrow. Uh, Bruce Barnum's coming up in the happy hour, the 5 o'clock hour, but we're going to start with the 5 at 5. Five biggest stories in sports are coming up. I want you here for it. I'm glad that you're listening to this show and making us part of your day. You got the bald-faced truth. Leave it here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. We're in the happy hour. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, will be joining us. Got a two-game win streak going. Trying to make it three in a row. They're home on Saturday against Weber State out in Hillsboro. We'll talk to Bruce Barnum coming up later this hour. But first, we're going to start with the 5 at 5. It is the five biggest stories going on in sports. And we begin it now. The 5 at 5. Well, the Mariners had game one of their American League Division Series. They tagged Justin Verlander for six runs in the game one start. And they led 7-5 to five with two outs in the ninth. Until this. Alvarez launches deep right field, and this one is gone, and the Astros walk him off in game one. Jordan Alvarez, are you kidding me? Not kidding, wish I was kidding. Jordan Alvarez with the walk-off home run, three-run jack, 8-7 Astros take game one. Game two is Thursday, 12-37 start, it'll be on TBS Game two on Thursday of this series. We'll be joined by Ryan Divish tomorrow. He writes for the Seattle Times. He covers this team like none other. He'll join us to kind of give us the mood with the Mariners. Uh, That is on tomorrow's show. Ex-Angels employee just got 22 years in prison for the death of Tyler Skaggs. This is the Angels pitcher that uh, died from an overdose in Texas. Eric Kay. Uh, was dressed in an orange jumpsuit when the judge read his sentence. No reaction from Skagg's widow and mother or members of Kay's family. So basically the case is that Kay provided the fentanyl-laced drugs that led to Skagg's death in a suburban Dallas hotel room back in 2019. Yeah, former PR employee of the organization who was uh, implicated as providing the fentanyl to the player. I thought it was interesting in the story, and you know better than I do, jailhouse conversations after the conviction are admissible. The judge had emails, phone messages, and uh, testimony with Eric Kay had apparently talked in derogatory terms about Skaggs and his family and some of the jurors 
And uh, the judge interrupted Kay as he was trying to make some comments in front of the uh, sentencing and said, uh, you know, let's let's quote you on what you said about Tyler Skaggs before I sentence you. He threw the book at him. Yeah, that didn't help his case. The judge saying that Kay displayed a callousness and refusal to accept responsibility and even be remorseful for something that he caused. Yeah. I mean, and look, it may prove that it may have ended up true that that Tyler Skaggs was using fentanyl, that he got other places or he might have found it somewhere else. But that doesn't that doesn't excuse Eric Kay from providing it to him. And ultimately, that's uh, 22 years. That's going to be a long wait for Eric Kay. Number three in our five at five. Let's talk a little bit about the Pac-12 conference. I mentioned this earlier in the show, but it's really interesting that, you know, a lot of people frustrated with the Pac-12 conference distribution when it came to its relationship with DirecTV. Everybody wanted it on DirecTV. Well, part of the reason why the Pac-12 network couldn't be on DirecTV was because it had a deal with Dish. The deal with Dish Network required the Pac-12 conference to renegotiate its deal if it allowed distribution on DirecTV. So the Pac-12 stuck with Dish because it would have lost money had it put the networks on DirecTV. Problem in the news today, Pac-12 network apparently suing Dish now because Dish didn't pay its fees. The rights fees that it guaranteed the Pac-12 apparently were not paid. John Wilner Bay Area News Group had the story fascinating uh, piece of uh, backstory, but essentially, Dish Network signed the deal and then didn't pay some of the carriage fees. Bad look for Dish. Number three, or number four, Anna, go. Sorry. (laughs) Can we all agree that moms should not be weighing in on situations like this? Draymond Green's mom is now defending his punch of Jordan Poole. She's justifying her son's actions at the Warriors practice, saying that he only hit pool because he was shoved in the first place. Mary Babers Green went on social media. She's giving her two cents on this, saying that it wasn't a sucker punch, that Dre didn't aggressively go to pool. His hands were down. Oh, boy. That he got shoved and reacted. End of story. I don't know about you. But I don't want my mom weighing in on anything like that if I ever do something. Do you think she's... Is she helping his case or not? No. Is she hurting his case? She's hurting the case. Oh, mama. How does she... How does he tell her not to weigh in, though? I don't know. She's she's got access to social media. It's a free country. I guess. She has a right to say something. I always think it's bad when parents get involved. Yes. Yes, it is. Here's Draymond Green uh, in a podcast during the NBA playoffs. Here's what he said. So here's the thing. Let me explain something to y'all. I play basketball. When I go on a basketball court, I'm not going out there to punch somebody in the mouth. I'm not going out there to try to pick a fight with anybody. I am going out on a basketball court to simply win a basketball game. Yeah. Apparently, he was out there trying to punch somebody in the mouth. Well, in fairness to Draymond, he punched him in the eye, not the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think those guys can coexist? I mean, Stephen, you played some basketball. Can those guys be good teammates? Can they fix that? Yeah, I think 100%. I think they'll uh, they'll get over it and the Warriors will be just fine. Just fine. 
Do you think Jordan Poole learns anything from this? <laughs> yeah, don't don't push Draymond when he's <laughs> mad at you. <laughs> For what it's worth, Draymond's mom thinks it's fi- it's fixable too. She Dr- says anything is fixable. Everything ain't always what you think you see. Well, there you go. Maybe they should bring her in to mediate that thing. <laughs> Finally, our five at five. Uh, the New York Giants played a game in London, beat the Packers on Sunday at uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. It was fish and chips after the game. Uh, Giants beat the Packers 27-22, and then they flew home. Problem is, they left their punter. That's right. They left their punter in London. Jamie Gillian did not travel back with the team. He remains overseas. He's got a passport issue. Gillian is nicknamed the Scottish Hammett. He's a native of Scotland, came to the U.S. as a teenager, did not play football until midway through his senior season of high school in Maryland. He's in his fourth professional season. He came to the United States on a NATO visa with his father. Apparently, they forgot to change it to a work visa when he entered the NFL. So he has been detained in London, not allowed to travel back to the United States. Seriously? This is what happens when you start playing games overseas. Okay? The Giants don't have a punter right now. What? Clock's ticking. That's so weird. They expect him back this weekend. They play the Ravens on Sunday, and they're hoping to get him back before fourth down. That's the five at five. (laughs) (laughs) The five biggest things. Um... I was detained once going uh, going between countries. Uh, okay. It's a good story. Need to know more? It's a pretty good story. I was going, uh, I'm a newspaper reporter. I'm traveling over to uh, Canada, to uh, Calgary. <laughs> All right. I'm going to Calgary <laughs> okay. to uh, cover a CFL story that I was working on. Jeff Garcia, who was the uh, quarterback with the Niners, was with the Calgary Stampeders, okay, of the CFL. Uh-huh. And so I was sent to Canada to go do this story. As I, uh, you know, you fly into Canada and, you know, I got a passport and all that stuff. They asked me, um, you know, uh, how long are you here? Mm -hmm. Like they stopped me as I got off the plane. They said, how long are you here for? And I said, I'm just here to cover this story. Wait, what do you mean they stopped you? As I'm going through, like, customs and okay. going, you know, they're so checking. you're just your going through the normal Normal customs. procedure. No, but they pulled me aside. <laughs> okay. And they detained me. Okay. They said, wait in this Did room. they do a rectal check? No rectal check. Okay. But they said, wait in this room. And they left me sitting there for, like, an hour in this room. Uh-huh. I had a photographer with me, and he was like, what the hell's going on? They're like, hey, he's busy. We're asking him some questions. Apparently... I had had, you know, I'd talked about when I was in high school, I jumped on the roof of the Taco Bell. Yeah. It was a bad idea. Okay. Jumped on the roof of a Taco Bell, had an actual bell, me and some friends. uh, We ripped the bell off the top of the Taco Bell. It was a terrible (laughs) idea. I use it as an example to my teenage daughter. Don't do a stupid thing. This can be a problem. We were cited for that. Okay. I was cited for trespassing. I was cited for vandalism. Uh Okay. And I had to pay some damages and work for the owner of that Taco Bell to fix and get the bell back up there, okay? So I I did my time. I paid for my crime. But apparently, uh, I did not disclose that to the customs agent when they asked me had I ever had a misdemeanor or any kind of citation. I was like, no, nothing. Because, you know, to me, that was like back in high school. Uh And I wasn't even an adult. 
Yeah. And so they said, uh, no, you had this uh, trespassing thing. And I was like, oh, that? I was on the roof of the Taco Bell, and I told them all about it. <laughs> but apparently they were just double-checking to make sure I wasn't fleeing the United States, oh, like, a decade later <laughs> over that incident. Seriously? Yes. It was the Taco Bell? It was the Taco Bell incident. Got you pulled aside at customs. Pulled aside at customs. Were you freaking out? No. I was, it was, and they were really nice about it. But they yeah. were like, hey, they kept asking me. Like, have you had any kind of run-in? And I was like, no. And they were like, nothing. <laughs> like, they were trying to get me to be like, yeah. And, and then they said, well, we got this, this thing. I think it ultimately said trespassing. Yeah. And they were like, what about this trespassing thing? And yeah. I was like, oh, that. And oh, I explained, that little thing? <laughs> I explained it to them. And they eventually said, go on your way. My favorite part of that Taco Bell story is how they actually figured out that it was you guys. I know. So lame. Bad criminals. Uh-huh. We, we had climbed up on the roof. It was kind of a rite of passage. We lived in a small town. There was a Taco Bell. They actually had a bell up there. Nowadays, when you go to a Taco Bell, it's a picture of a bell. Right. That's on top of the Taco Bell. Well, they figured it out. It was yeah. too, too tempting. It was tempting. And so it, that bell had been stolen numerous times. <laughs> and so we got up there in broad daylight. We took the bell down. We jumped down off the roof. One of my friends had his jersey on with his last name on the back of the jersey. <laughs> it was a it was a phone call from Taco Bell saying, "Hey, uh, you know, we got a uh, number twelve Acosta who goes to school there," and they were like, "Yeah." And so we all got busted. We all had to apologize. We we did our time. I remember that uh, I had to appear in court, and the judge said. Uh, you're a menace to society. He rolled his eyes. Yeah. And I said, I'm really sorry. We shouldn't have done that. And he said, go on your way. Note to other trespassers, if you're going to try and steal a Taco Bell, don't wear a jersey <laughs> with your name and number loudly displayed on it. I'll have to remind myself of this if one day any of our children get in that kind of trouble. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. That I was once an idiot myself. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce, we Barnum. were all Bruce Barnum's coming up, Portland State football coach. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Portland State's on a win streak. Portland State football. They won two in a row, beat Lincoln last week. They get Weber State this week. Here to talk about it, Bruce Barnum, football coach, Portland State. You're, uh, the week, the days after a win are always better than the days after a loss, right? Always, John, always. Uh, uh, that fixes everything, you know. The sky's blue. All the mistakes are looked at and corrected with smiles instead of, you know. Uh, but, no, it's, it's, it's fun to win. Give us an idea of, you know, Lincoln, obviously, you guys, uh, you know, beat them 48-6. to six. You, you uh, get some guys in the game that probably aren't getting a lot of playing time uh, in other games. But, um, you know, how does that feel to you to kind of get out there and, and get an opportunity to let, let some of those other guys play? Well, I uh, love it. You know, their roles aren't, you know, they're not on the field starting for us. Um, but they're working hard to get us prepared, so to get those guys in the game is, is cool. They love the game of football, and I uh, tried to clear the bench, did my best, but we had a lot of guys dressed. The majority got in, but 
you know, and I was proud of my team, John. You know, we're the we're finally not the underdog in the game, and my team did what they're supposed to do. You know, and I told them after the win, I said, hey, don't get me wrong. If you have trouble, um, you know, enjoying this one, uh, you did what you're supposed to do. You're in control of the game, and just think if if you would have lost it, you know, <laughs> where you'd be. So yeah, enjoy it, but nothing. Good ever happens after midnight, so shut her off then. <laughs> How do you uh, manage that? Because you got like 90 kids under your care. What kind of advice do you give them like as you're breaking the locker room huddle after a win? Uh, I, I actually said what I just told you, John, uh, at the end, you know. Um, but, uh, and like I said, enjoy it. They work hard. You know, they got a W, so. That's why you play. Um, there were a lot of smiles because uh, many people played. But again, you know, I'm not naive. I, you and I, I was in college once, and I just said, I said nothing good happens after midnight. So shut her down. You know, uh, don't. I mean, I've said all kinds of stuff to these guys just to try to keep them safe, treat them like your kids. That's the easiest way to do it. You got uh, a tough one. Weber State coming in ranked. They'll be 2 o'clock kickoff at Hillsborough Stadium. You got them at home. But what do you see on film when you look at Weber State? Uh, defense. Uh, they're very efficient in the back end. They've got good front. They're well coached. You know, we went up there last year and snuck them, knocked them out of the playoffs. So I'm sure they're, if they were taking the mighty Vikes light, uh, the coaches might have something to, you know, bounce back on and talk to them about. But. They're a good football team, you know, um, but I think I have a good football team. We just have to make sure. We're, I wish we were healthy. We're not, but we're closer. Um, but everybody's probably saying that in football right now with, you know, midseason. So um, they're a good football team, period. So we have. I like the plan uh, for them. We threw it on the field today and throw it on the field again tomorrow, shine it up Thursday, ready to go. I'll get after the Wildcats. You're in that rhythm where, you know, your guys are probably in rhythm, you're in rhythm, school's going on. Um, compare Weber State for us, you know, to maybe Montana, Montana State, when, you know, physicality-wise, talent-wise, how do they look? Um, their system is different. Um, they do well. They have some very mature, thick bodies up front, you know, you look at their front, linebackers are mostly Utah, you know, some return missionaries that are older, you know, more mature, and uh, the back ends uh, from out of state, it's kind of interesting, and they're, they are faster than uh, Flash Gordon, I mean, they fly, they fly around, and they use it, they use, run cover one, which means they have enough pe for the people, uh, you know, football. Uh, they run cover one to stop the run. Uh, they are able to load the box. A lot of people want to do that, but they don't have the people to cover in the back end. They do. They have a transfer safety from Boise State, uh, who is very fast, uh, very aggressive. You know, he's in cover one, cover three, but all of a sudden he's showing up on the line of scrimmage. So we'll try to take advantage maybe of of his uh, um, you know play. Uh, but uh, everybody's beatable. You know, that's what we talked to our guys about. But their system is different. Back to your question. Their system is different. Montana's Kent Bear is, is more of a, 
you know, they're all over the place. They're going to blitz you. Uh, these guys don't blitz you as much. They say we're better than you. We're going to cover you. We're going to mix it up as soon as you think we're in man. We're going to run cover three. You know, that's how they swamped, I think, Eastern last year. They're kind of unique. You know, a lot of people, well, what do you do to find out what coverage is in? Well, you, you move a guy. You motion a guy. Well, they're pretty smart and it's kind of a cool deal. They motion with him, you know, even when they're in cover three, and that guy would become your roll-down safety. So I think that, you know, goose egged Eastern's offense for a while, and they got a couple turnovers out of it, and a close game became a swamp at the end. Uh, Weber State winning, so they're relying on turnovers. Um, and, you know, they're a good football team. They're undefeated, I think, or the last team to beat them. So welcome to Big Sky. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, is with us. Um, your uh, SID, Mike Lund, sent me a photograph of a beer stein. It's Barney's beer stein. What's going on with the Barney beer stein? <laughs> well, uh, first off, it's Photoshop because somebody said, hey, you look kind of cool, which if anybody's ever seen me in person, they know that's not true. Um, so thank you know goodness for Internet and uh, they, they can do that. Um, but, yeah, they're giving away Steins. Uh, it's, uh, that and pretzels, I think. Not so what, dots, but so the, what do you the, do? You get you got to buy it, or you do you know the deal or not? Like, well, you know, no, I did ask, which I didn't understand some of the things they said. Done. They said, oh, you know, we can't give away beer. It's illegal. I said, how the hell did that change? Last year, it was a different story. They're giving away the, stein, the, the beer steins. They're giving okay. away the pretzels, first thousand. Okay. Um, and there's a BFT deal, you know. Yeah. Uh, we need to get some money raised for a BFT Foundation. So we're uh, we're going to tweet out a code for people who want to attend the game and get a discount on the tickets. It is the uh, Camp Exceptional BFT Foundation game, this Weber State game. So you're going to get a whole bunch of kids in the crowd. Bruce Barnum is with us. Um, give me an idea. I've always been curious about this. Okay, I have two two big questions for you that are more philosophy questions. But, you know, you're you're playing Lincoln last week. You got the game in hand. I always hear coaches say, you know, I don't want to show too much to our next opponent. How tuned in is Weber State to what you're doing to Lincoln, or are they looking back to the Montana game, to the San Jose State game, to kind of get an idea of who you are personnel-wise and schematically? They're thorough. They'll look at them all. Uh, they might not focus on this one as much. Uh, probably time-wise more than that. They'll, they'll look at maybe the first half, um, I'm guessing, John, and take that from it because – uh, like the offense, I, uh, we left them in for two quarters, and then at halftime I brought them out again because I wanted to teach my offense how, how to respond, how to come out after a half, you know what I mean? Uh, they came out, they scored a touchdown, and they were done for the day. So, But I wanted to teach them that. So I'm guessing they look at that, you know, uh, first quarters in the first series of the third quarter. Um, and then they'll take everything in. But now with all the stuff they have, you know, I'm, I do some of mine part old school, part computer. I mean, you can you can break a film down and punch buttons and get it. You can look at anything you want so easily now. Um, you know, just as far as, okay, all plays 20-yard line left hash. I mean, you can punch anything up if the, when your data is put in. So, um, are, are you ever tempted just to give the opponent something extra th to think about to do something that is way out of character during a game just so you throw something in there that 
that you know gives the opponent one more thing to have to prepare for. Yes, you'll try to waste some of their time. Um, you'll put a lot of guys do it. Let's start with special teams. A lot of guys will do it with the muddled huddle when you kick a PAT or a field goal. Um, whether you're going to use it or not, every look you give them, they have to go over with their defense. That takes time away from their practice. Um, offensively, uh, you might give you know a bunch of different formations uh, just to keep them. You know they're they're, they're going to break it down to what you do and what you've scored on the most and what your impact plays are, but throw those in, and so maybe on a Thursday they're wasting their time doing stuff. Yes, do stuff like that. I don't, my special teams guy, he's big on, hey, I'm going to show him model huddle, I'm going to show him this formation upon them, we're going to do this in punt return, we're going to do this in kickoff, you know, to keep them busy with special teams. But offensively, I do it, but we're kind of a, here's what we do, I'm going to show it to you out of, you know, 20 different looks, stop it. I'm a little stubborn in that regard. Give me another idea, too. We're watching the NFL and roughing the passer last couple of weeks. It's been alarming to see what they're flagging. How do you coach that with guys? Or what do you tell your defensive tackles, your pass rushers, when it comes to the quarterback and the way the game's being called and what you see in the NFL? Um, you know, I, I didn't even know about that until I heard uh, this morning when I was heading in. There's a New York talk. I turned the radio on. I only turn on about once a week and that's all the guy talked about my entire drive i finally turned it off because he was rambling and about the same thing but um you just got to play the game it's a, it's a violent game they're trying to protect the quarterback all around uh more at that level because that's your guy you know and they don't want a boring offense out there i guess with a second third team quarterback uh, because you give that one guy so much darn money um so you know, I, I don't know. I didn't see the ta- the strip sack. I didn't see any of it. I just heard the guy talking about it on radio, and I don't have time to check the twit. So, um, yeah. but, did, but what, do you, how do you, what do you tell your guys? What do you tell your guys? Do you tell them, hey, wrap them up, don't land on them? You know, like I, how do you teach a you know a three hundred pound guy who's trying to get to the quarterback to be gentle once he gets there? I I we I don't. I mean, if it's legal and it's there, I mean, it's part of the game. And sack him. Um, I can't afford to be dainty. I need to win football games, you know. Um, you're not there to hurt him. You're not there to take him out. But if you've got a chance to tackle him, tackle him. You know, you got to stay high on him. I mean, we don't. You can't I'll lead with your head and all that. But tackle him. He's got the ball in his hand, you know. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, with us. Uh, all right, finally. We hear about coaches that will use their bye week to recruit or see some players. How do you evaluate guys? How do you keep kind of the recruiting arm of the operation functioning while you're focused week to week on the football? Um, interesting one, because I'm trying to get ahead of the Joneses right now. You know, you, you can a lot of these the. Bigger guy, FBS, SEC, Pac-12, they have a recruiting office, you know what I mean, John? I don't. Um, but I did hire a guy. I'm trying to stay ahead of my level. I I brought a guy on this year, and he is, that's his job. He's a recruiter. He's player personnel. Uh, I, I thought up a, some names for him, but 
Um, he's, he's my guy. He's my scouting office. Him and A.C. Patterson, my recruiting coordinator, and we've got him. We've got him going out this week. You know, he's going out. He's taking advantage for my organization of the recruiting calendar more than I could before. So people see Portland State, et cetera. Um, they see us out there. They see us not only on a Friday game day, you know. He can stop by and get transcripts and eyeball a guy. Uh, I'm using all those calendars. That's how how I'm trying to get ahead uh, of the recruiting side of it. Good luck to you on Saturday. Beat Thanks. Weber State. Three straight, like to see that. You win three straight, we call it lightning in a bottle here. So go get it. All right, we'll get a little lightning and add maybe a little thunder on the side. <laughs> Bruce Barnum. <laughs> go get right. it. There he is, Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach. They got the beer stands. They got the pretzels. I got a promo code for you. If you want to go see uh, the Portland State team play against Weber State, uh, I am going to tweet out the promo code, but also uh, we've got a promo code that uh, I can give you here uh, verbally if you want it as well. Uh, they help the BFT Foundation. They do a great job. Uh, Portland State, Weber State, support them. I am uh, tweeting it out uh, as we speak. Uh, it is, I don't know if I can verbally give you the promo code. I'm looking for it. But uh, in the end, uh, you get a discount on tickets, 15 bucks to get in the door. Uh, Bruce Barnum and his team do a fantastic job uh, taking care of the community, taking care of kids. If you want to join, if you want to see and buy tickets, uh, look at 750 The Game uh, Twitter account. Also, my Twitter, at John Canzano BFT. Also, you can go to the BFT Foundation's Twitter, at BFT Foundation, and uh, there's a link there to order up some tickets, 15 bucks to get in and see the Vikings play Weber State. Weber State ranks sixth right now in that division of football. Very good football team, but Portland State playing at home. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. UCLA Athletic Director Martin Jarmond uh, told ESPN today that he thinks the best football in America is being played at the Rose Bowl. The best football in America. Now, do I believe the best football in America is being played by UCLA? No, it's not. But I kind of like what Martin Jarmond's doing. The Athletic Director at UCLA comes from the Big Ten Conference. He's got his background at Ohio State. Prior to UCLA, he was at Boston College. Uh, what I'm saying is he understands the promotion game, he understands the marketing game, and he's in L.A. where he's trying to sell tickets into the Rose Bowl. I don't blame him one bit for, for going public and saying, hey, I think we have the best football team in America. I think the University of Oregon needs to start doing this. Lincoln Riley and USC, they got out of the gates doing this. Mike Bone, the athletic director, you remember how UCLA and USC have uh, started their seasons? You know, it was very different. Like, all the expectation was coming out of the USC world, where Bone brought the song girls and the USC marching band at the introductory news conference for Lincoln Riley. And, you know, he essentially uh, let it sail and, you know, basically just said, the, you know, the best football in America. 
is uh, not happening at U- UCLA, but it's going to be happening at um, USC. He said, you know, they were they were going to rock the college football world. And I'm not saying that they have because I still think USC has got a lot to prove here, but I like what these ADs are doing. They're hyping it up. Guys, is, where is the best college football in America being played right now? I think it's in the SEC in, down south still, but, you know, I, I agree with you. I think if you're the Pac-12 and you're UCLA and you're the West Coast, you want to get that recognition over here. And not many people stand up for the Pac-12 and say it's good football over here, but this year we talked about this. Like, the Pac-12 is definitely up this year. You know, it was a down year last year, but they're having a really good year, so try to promote the teams and you know, see if you can get into the college football playoff with a one-loss team just in case USC or UCLA loses. I, I like the strategy. I think that it's a, been a really bad year for the Big Ten. You know, I think I, my answer is Ohio State. Like, I think Ohio State's the best team in the country right now, and I think they have the best shot to win the title, but they're playing cupcakes every single week. I think the Big 12 and the Pac-12 are both really good this year. Uh, the Big 12's got the depth going for it. The Pac-12's got, uh, you know, four, maybe three, maybe four great teams. Uh, I'd say three. And then, uh, you know, SEC, it's it's not only Bama and Georgia, but we'll see what Tennessee's made of. Uh, uh, then, you know, other than that, it's been a little bit disappointing in the SEC. So it's been kind of mixed throughout the country. But I think the Big 12 and Pac-12 are having better than expected seasons. Yeah, I think uh, given what we saw last year from the Pac-12, everybody kind of looked at how the Pac-12 came out of the non-conference schedule. And aside from week one where Utah lost at Florida and Oregon got boat raced by Georgia, it's been a, a really productive non-conference for the for the Pac-12. They've saved some face and beat some Big Ten teams like Wisconsin and Michigan State, for example, that maybe we didn't expect. I still think Ohio State might be the best team in America. It's Georgia, it's Ohio State, it's Alabama, but Michigan is sitting there undefeated. Penn State is 5-0. and um, Are we not giving any respect to those teams? Uh, yeah, and you know, I, think, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Like look, the, I, the bulk of the okay, Big Ten so stinks. I agree. Yeah, Michigan and Penn State. I I need to see it more. Um, you know, like because the rest of the Big Ten stinks. Like, uh, I forgive me. I it's the Big Ten West. It's the the division that Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan are not in. It's just a complete mess. That other side of the Big Ten and teams like Wisconsin and Michigan State, Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern. It's all awful this year. So, uh, I do believe in Ohio State because there have been other players and units that have stepped up for them that we didn't even expect, and they are just on cruise control. But Penn State and Michigan, I still have to see it. Um, you know, I, I'm i not really sure. I, I believe in three teams as a whole uh, in college football right now. It's Bama, Georgia, Ohio State, but I'm still waiting for a fourth. It could be Tennessee. They got Bama this week. I, I do think Michigan is actually a really good team. Uh, you know, they've struggled a little bit in Big Ten play, haven't really blown out opponents, but they have gotten the wins and they really pull away at the end. I'm not buying Penn State as long as Sean Clifford is the quarterback. I just don't think he's that great. And they kind of a ceiling with him at, at when he's the quarterback. So, uh, yeah, John, I mean, by Michigan, I think that they are a definite contender for that four spot in the college football playoff. And, you know, they have their shot when they play against Ohio State at the end of the year. I really wish Texas would have beat Alabama early in the year because the whole, I think it would have thrown the poll a little bit in a different direction. I think Clemson would probably be sitting at three and Michigan at four. Already. Or A&M. I mean, A&M had yeah. a shot last yeah. play. Yeah. I, I, I see. Uh, I think Alabama's got some weaknesses. This isn't, this doesn't remind me of some of those years where Alabama gets to the playoff and we all sort of pencil them into the title game. But um, 
you know, Ohio State is coming on in a way that reminds me of how, what they did in 2015. And, you know, they're just they're starting. You can feel it going as, you know, they're starting to come on. So keep an eye on that. But, I, it, you know, I can't help but think about the 12-team playoff. And I'm looking at, like, the top 15 right now in the poll. And how far down, as you look at the AP top 25 or the coaches poll, how far down do you go before you go, you know what, this team can't win it? You know what I mean by that? Like, how many true contenders are there right now on the board? If you, if I gave you a pool and I said, all right, you can pick a handful of teams, how many teams do you need to pick to absolutely capture the national champion at this point of the season? I think I would go, I think four teams could win the national championship in football. And I think it's Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, and then I would put Clemson in there as well. I think Clemson has the talent and has proven that they can beat these type of teams. I don't think Michigan has enough to win it all, neither to Tennessee or USC. So, uh, yeah, I think it's those four. And to your point, Alabama, how they do have some weaknesses this year, uh, they are seven-point favorites on the road at Tennessee, but that doesn't seem like a lot, right? No. Like Usually it's about 14 wins like this. So, uh, yeah, it seems a little vulnerable this week. If I'm going yeah, to say six teams, and, oh, wow. and I need one more week, though. In one more week, I'll be able to say three or four because I want to see Alabama play at Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. No, I, Bama's interesting because they're going to be in the SEC title game most likely, and then that could very well be a loss to Georgia. So if they can get one more loss during this regular season, then suddenly that's two. And I'm with you, John. I wish it happened against A&M or, or Texas because I don't really know who in the state of Oregon. I don't, you know, I, I wonder if anyone listening to the show roots for Alabama. Like, if you don't live in the yeah, state of Alabama. I have a friend who's Alabama grad who listens to the show. Okay. Yeah, so well, I'm yeah, sure I think everyone's rooting against yeah. them, and I think it's it's a year where they're a little bit more vulnerable. But I, I still see three. You know, if, I, if Bryce Young is healthy, which is not a, not a for sure, he's still questionable to play in this week's game against Tennessee, I think Alabama should be in those top teams of competing for a national championship and can get it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I still see three for now. Georgia, Ohio State, Bama. I, you know, I think uh, it's a drop-off after that, unfortunately, as fun as it's been. I still want to see it played out. You know, I still can't wait for the 12-team playoff. We're going to play Punch It Audio coming up. I want you to leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I want to play some Punch It Audio. Best sound from all around. Punch It Audio. We do it every day on the show. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Devontae Adams shoved a video person after the Monday Night Football loss. He's since apologized. Stephen A. Smith says, not good enough. Punch it. It's literally an innocent bystander that you extended your hand and you shoved to the ground. You didn't walk over to help him up. You didn't say anything until you went back to the locker room and cooled off or what have you. If you're in the NFL and that's caught on camera on national television for Monday Night Football, there is no way that you're going to let that slide. 
So I'm not telling you that he deserves a suspension because he's some bad dude or anything like that. I think he's a very good guy from yeah. everything that I've heard, and I don't want anybody thinking that this is a reason to cast aspersions on his character or whatever. He was caught up in the moment. It just, I mean, that does not happen to receiver running two veterans, running into one another, yeah, which is just look. embarrassing. It's a very bad look, and we understand why he's frustrated. But if you're the National Football League, you're sending the message. No matter how frustrated you are, you can't do that. And that's why I think a suspension is coming. Look, I, I, uh, I'm I, not going to go as far as suspension coming, but I do think there's a fine here for Devontae Adams, and I think there's a lesson for other players. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to have a bad moment. What I didn't like about this was Adams' kind of fakey Bob apology on Twitter and to media members afterwards when he could have very easily left the locker room or turned around after he shoved the guy and said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm having a bad moment. Bothered me as well. I agree with Stephen A. I think Devontae Adams probably one of the good guys. Having a bad moment there, still was a bad moment. Joe Buck and Troy Aikman sounding off on the roughing the passer stuff. Uh, Troy Aikman, let's start with him. Punch it. Play again, the ball comes out right there. And the ball is possessed by Jones. He's going to the ground with Carr. His body's there. It's just where it, it is. It's too much. I mean, my hope is the competition committee looks at this in the next set of meetings and, you know, we take the dresses off. Take the dresses off, said Troy Aikman. He's getting some uh, grief for that, but I agree with the sentiment. Chiefs fans also lost their minds after the call. Car is hit from behind. And the ball... is taken away by Jones. A flag comes out on the play. Well, I think Carl's going Personal full body weight. Roughing the passer. Number 97. Defense. 15-yard penalty. Automatic first down. So there. I don't blame the fans for being upset. Eli Manning, he says the NFL's on the right track. Punch it. I think the NFL's on the right path, and, and they want to make the game safer, and they want to protect the quarterbacks. I, you know, as a quarterback, uh, you know, I, I love the idea. And uh, even as coaches, I think they agree we got to protect these quarterbacks. It's such a, you know, important position. And you don't have this, you know, another, another guy just waiting to step in who's going to be as productive as your starting quarterback in most cases. And so, you know, it used to just be, is it late? Is it, That's really the only hit a quarterback and how you right. get a foul is are you late hitting them? You know, the hits, the helmet call deserved every time. It's this kind of other hit where it's the, driving into the ground or kind of this excessive tackling, which which is, it's hard to judge. It's hard to, for a ref to decide, you know, is this, uh, you know, truly a, a hit that is illegal or, or was he driving or just tackling? It's, it's hard for a player to, uh, I think it's pretty obvious when you take a guy and you just, you know, totally drive him into the ground versus tackle him. And I think the players are smarter about it. So I think maybe, you know, you could bring in instant replay into these calls uh, just because they are such important calls and difference makers. That's Eli Manning. Chris Jones, the uh, defensive lineman with the Chiefs who was flagged for the roughing the passer, agrees that it should be booth review. They roughing the passers, they don't put such an emphasis on that that we got to be able to view it in the booth now. You know what I mean? I think that's the next step as an NFL as a whole. That if we're going to continue to call roughing the passers at 
that high of a velocity, then we got to be able to view it in the booth to make sure because sometimes it looks can be deceiving, you know what I mean? From from the ref point of view, he probably looked like that initially, but, you know, and when you look at the replay, it's a whole different thing. So I think now the, to evolve, roughing the passer and protecting the quarterback is essentially what we're doing in this league. we got to be able to look at roughing the passers in the booth. You, 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 you take a look at the uh, Grady Jarrett situation. I was going to ask you about it. Did you see that one from yesterday? Of course. It's all over Twitter. And, 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 and what type of situation that was in the game. That was a third down stop also. And then when you take that in initiative, if we're able to view it in the booth and the referees can get a second look because it's happening so fast, maybe we can change that. There it is. I think it's a good solution. Let the referees take a second look in the booth. Problem is, I don't want the NFL to wait for another season. I'd like to see this addressed in the middle of the season. Mariners built a big lead against the Astros in Game 1 of their American League Division Series. J.P. Crawford went deep. Verlander delivers, and that one is high and deep to right. And J.P. Crawford flexes his muscles. That one is way gone. Crawford launches and makes it 5-2 Seattle. Crawford and the Mariners led 7-5 in the ninth inning. Bottom of the ninth, two outs, 0-1 pitch. Didn't go well. Alvarez launches deep right field. And this one is gone. And the Astros walk him off in game one. Jordan Alvarez! Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Uh, as Steven said, no. Not kidding. Jordan Alvarez with the walk-off three-run jack. Astros take game one. It's all about the bounce back now for the Mariners. That's Punch It Audio. Trip around the world of sports. The problem with the NFL, guys, is this is what we are talking about. The NFL should be about the games and the great plays, and now suddenly we're talking about roughing the passer. And this is a similar discussion to what we know we talked about earlier in the year with the Pac-12. We need to be talking about the great Pac-12 games, not the Pac-12 officiating. Yeah, it seems like it's always about the referees, right? And that's the unfortunate part because we all love football, but we can't be talking about football when, when the refs are making these kind of weird calls that we just don't understand. So I'm with you. Like I, I want one week to go by without the refs making a controversial decision, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I uh, want you to leave it here on 750 The Game in Portland. What do we have coming up next, top of the hour? We got uh, the pulse with Peter Sams. He's ready to go. Uh, you know, he's a little down with the Braves, but uh, he'll be good. Ugh. Are, are you? Are <laughs> you, you hear him. Look, hey, this is the playoffs. You know, it's all about the bounce back, right? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be. But between that and watching the Mariners lose how they did, it was. I hate baseball today, John. Yeah, baseball was not kind to uh, to the underdogs today. Uh, uh, leave it here for the Pulse and Peter Sampson. We're back tomorrow with another great show.